This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 139th edition of the program. Today is Thursday, April 19th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, and this week we have quite a bit of people that signed up to support us. We have Activism Media, Alex Mousseau, Anthony Penza, Austin Pruitt, Brian D. Walters III, Christian Bays, Jason, John Eric Allen, Leanne Cogert, Matt DeJohnny, Niku Mariso, Realzoid, and Riverain Walters. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to join the independent progressive media revolution and support us, you can do so either by visiting humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's show, first, we'll talk about how American news media played a role in President Trump's decision to bomb Syria and completely abdicated their duty to hold our government accountable. Additionally, on the topic of American news media, Ed Schultz is speaking out about how MSNBC tried to silence him when he wanted to cover Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in 2016. Also, one journalist is already declaring Joe Biden the frontrunner in 2020. We'll talk about that and also how the DNC is still funneling money to Hillary Clinton. Also, Democrats in California are trying to water down their state's net neutrality bill. I'll tell you what they're doing. And on the topic of net neutrality, April 23rd is the beginning of the end of net neutrality. We'll talk about how the FCC's repeal of Title II will slowly be rolled out. And Donald Trump finally publicly admits that he's now in favor of the TPP after quietly promoting it abroad for months. And on the subject of Donald Trump, him and his Republican colleagues are waging an all-out war on the poor. I'll tell you what they're doing to weaken our already weak social safety net in a multitude of ways. And we'll talk about Nikki Haley and how she was confronted by a protester that asked about why she's not allowing the UN to conduct an independent investigation into Israel's brutalization of peaceful Palestinian protesters. And finally on this program, we'll speak with congressional candidates Tambourine Borelli of Washington and Tim Canova of Florida. So hopefully you guys enjoy the program. We've got a jam-packed episode, uh, so let's waste no time. Enjoy the show. Well, as you all know by now, Donald Trump decided to bomb the capital of Syria, Damascus, and this is a dramatic escalation not only between the U.S. and Syria, but the U.S. and Russia as well. And seeing as how an unhinged maniac just put us on the doorstep of World War III, you know, you'd think that most people would be mad, especially the so-called resistance, but in fact, a lot of them 
didn't seem too mad about it. So when you go to Chuck Schumer, the leader of the so-called resistance, he actually tweeted out support for Donald Trump's bombings. I'm not kidding. Saying a pinpointed limited action to punish and hopefully deter Assad from doing this again is appropriate, but the administration has to be careful about not getting us into a greater and more involved war in Syria. Now, clearly Chuck Schumer didn't proofread his tweet because by bombing Syria, you are getting us more involved with war in Syria. It's inherently contradictory, genius. So, I mean, I don't even know what Chuck Schumer is trying to say. All he thought was bombs, that's a good thing. Now, Nancy Pelosi, another Democratic Party leader, did seem to support it overall, although there is a caveat. She was a little bit upset that Donald Trump didn't ask Congress for their permission first, even though it seemed like she would have given him permission to do that. But she also stated, of course, the importance of holding Putin accountable, as he literally bombed one of Putin's top allies. We have to go back a little bit and think about how absurd this is. As he's bombing Syria, an ally of Russia, she's saying he needs to hold Putin accountable. Are you nuts, Nancy? Do you want World War III? Are you willing to pick up a gun and fight? I don't think you are. So maybe you should be careful about what you are pressuring an unhinged maniac, according to your words, to do. Now, Democrat Bill Nelson just straight up supports the bombing with no caveats whatsoever, no stipulations. He supports it. So there were a lot of fans of Donald Trump's decision to bomb Syria, even if it was illegal under international law and unconstitutional. But you're not really going to find a bigger fan and cheerleader for Donald Trump than you will among the missile manufacturer industry. Companies like Raytheon, Boeing, and Lockheed Martin, who saw their stock value rise by $5 billion as a result of Donald Trump bombing Damascus. But not everyone was happy with Donald Trump's bombings. In fact, warmonger Lindsey Graham was a bit pissed off that Donald Trump wasn't more harsh. So it seemed as though bombing Assad before we had any evidence whatsoever that he used chemical weapons, or even still has chemical weapons, mind you, since there were reports that he gave them up before. That seems like a popular decision. People don't really seem to be pissed off at Donald Trump for doing this. Something that could escalate to World War III, not a big deal. So that's what politicians, for the most part, think about Donald Trump's bombing of Syria. Democrats, they weren't really taking a stand against war itself so much as they were resisting Donald Trump by saying, well, you know, you can't really do this unless you come to Congress first. So, I mean, they're not really taking a principled stand against war itself. They're just saying, well, Donald Trump, just ask us. But I mean, really, if Donald Trump did come to Congress, how many of these spineless Democrats would vote for him to bomb Syria? A lot of them, if not all of them, with the exception of a couple of holdouts. So these politicians, they're all bloodthirsty. They're all neoconservative warmongers. But what really matters is if the American people are informed and if our mainstream media is holding government accountable as they try to get us into another war. Are they asking the right questions here? Are they saying, well, why bomb him before we conduct an investigation? Why bomb him before we have evidence? Didn't Assad give up his chemical weapons? Why does it suit Assad to gas his own people? What uh, chemical agent did he even use? Well, these are the questions that a competent media would ask, but unfortunately for us, media was some of the biggest cheerleaders for Donald Trump. Of course, not to be surpassed by defense contractors, but... 
They cheerleaded on his efforts to bomb Syria. In fact, MSNBC's Ali Velshi decided to respond to a tweet made by TYT's Jenk Uger where he called out mainstream media pundits saying, It's incredible how readily the cable news channels have politicians on pushing for war in Syria with almost no questions asked about how disastrous it might be or the so-called evidence. They pretended to learn lessons from Iraq but have actually learned nothing. Now, Ali Velshi responded to Jenk saying, Have you missed the seven years of the Assad regime killing half a million of its own people? How about how disastrous it's been for the world to not have taken a role in Syria? The lesson here is not from Iraq, it's from the Holocaust, from Rwanda, from Bosnia. Actually, no, the lesson here is to be taken from Iraq, because in the lead-up to the Iraq war, our leaders told us that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, and the media went along with that narrative. They didn't question it at all. And now, you're telling us here that we're supposed to believe that Assad used chemical weapons against his own people, when the last time we checked, he doesn't even have chemical weapons, and furthermore, it doesn't suit him personally, knowing that he would provoke an attack by the U.S. So, if you are going to use your logic here, we're supposed to already accept that we've been presented with the evidence and then we take action. But even if we got evidence that Assad gases on people, that was, you know, you couldn't question it. We knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Assad was gassing his own people. Well, Saudi Arabia is carrying out a genocide in Yemen. Should we invade them? Myanmar is waging a literal genocide against the Rohingya. We gonna attack them too, Ali? There are atrocities being committed around the world that you're ignoring. You have a TV show in the mainstream media. You can cover this. But you only care about Syria, which also happens to be a really important country because our intervention in Syria also happens to suit our geopolitical interests. Hmm, isn't it interesting how that works out? What about Israel? Does Ali Velshi care about Israel, who just killed 17 peaceful Palestinian protesters? Are we going to drop a couple of bombs on them? You see, the job of the media, Ali, is to ask these types of questions, to ask the government to provide us with evidence that Assad used chemical weapons against his own people. Mainstream corporate media is as obedient to the state as it was in Ben Ali's Tunisia before the revolution, as it is in Egypt. They are nothing more than propaganda for the Pentagon. So congratulations, Ali. You are a useful idiot. But he's not alone because according to FAIR, major newspapers urge Trump to kill Syrians, risk World War III. And they explain how the New York Times editorial board subtly suggested that Trump should bomb Syria by saying he should follow through on his tough talk. Now, additionally, The Guardian's Simon Tisdall demanded military action and, of course, the editorial board of The Washington Post said U.S. leadership would be further diminished in the world if Trump didn't bomb them. And those assessments don't even include cable news because CNN may have actually been on par with Fox News, who typically is the worst when it comes to warmongering because they just allowed the White House to set the agenda it wanted to set. They didn't even question it. They aired comments from Nikki Haley. They aired a 34 minute press briefing from the Pentagon and that doesn't even include all of the warmongers that they brought on to tell us that bombing Syria was a good idea so I don't I mean the situation in this country is so bad with how awful the media is with how unwilling they are to question the narrative being handed down to us by the Pentagon 
the U.S. government it really is empowered to get involved with any country they want to because the media will just go along with it. And if you question it, you're the weirdo. If you ask questions that are legitimate, you're the one who's being conspiratorial. And again, the Iraq war was 15 years ago when the government lied to us. Is it really that implausible that they could be lying to us again because they have a geopolitical interest and they want to invade Syria? But, you know, what's really weird about all of this is that even though Fox News certainly did its part in promoting this war, we saw the most amount of anti-war voices come out of the network, which is really weird. I mean, this is the PR wing of the Republican Party, and then you had people like Tucker Carlson, who really emerged as the leading anti-war voice with regard to Syria. It's our moral duty, endless CNN panels have reminded us, to uphold international standards of behavior and punish war criminals like Assad, okay? But are we sure Assad was responsible for the gas attacks? Many people claim he was. They started claiming that within hours of the attacks themselves before many of the most basic facts were even known, and they're still claiming it. But where's the proof? Also, credit where it's due, Laura Ingram questioned the dominant narrative, asking thoughtful questions about our reasoning for bombing Syria. There are atrocities committed every day all over the world, including in our strategic adversary, China. Uh, and yet we go in again with a military strike a year after a pr previous military strike. And I guess it feels good because there are horrible things happening there. But what do we really accomplish here tonight in Syria? This was not why Donald Trump got elected, in my view. And surprisingly, Tommy Lahren, who basically is wrong about everything else, came out against the bombing in Syria. The last thing we should do is continue our involvement in another Mideast disaster. And last but certainly not least, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones even came out against Trump's bombings in Syria. I'm not in a fucking cult for Donald Trump. Fuck him. Fuck his family. Fuck all these people. Now, I'm not trying to imply here that Fox News is suddenly an anti-war voice. They're not. Because those three voices on Fox News, they were, they were the exception. Everyone else was in favor of war. Besides just three voices on Fox News, and again... A deranged conspiracy theorist. Now, of course, as usual, there were progressive journalists that spoke out against this. That includes Glenn Greenwald, the great Rania Kaliak. But the pro-war voices were so loud this time that it completely drowned out progressives. It seemed as though every single person was on board with this. And it really, I mean, just in my own social circles, it became socially acceptable to support this. You couldn't question the narrative at all, otherwise you're a conspiracy theorist. So this is the state of our country. Government can wage war in any country they want to because the media will go along with it. And again, media is often considered a fourth branch of government because it's supposed to be a check on government power and authority. They're supposed to stop and ask the really important questions, but they're not doing that. They're cheerleading Donald Trump on and gobbling up any information the Pentagon gives them. This is a really terrifying time to reside in the United States if you are against war because the media has legitimized the Pentagon and military-industrial complex. Anything they tell us, we have to accept and not question it. And if you do question it, you're the weirdo. 15 years after Iraq, it's... This is sad. 
Ed Schultz is a former MSNBC host who was one of the few standouts on the network who actually did their job and spoke truth to power. For example, he was, I believe, the only host on the network at the time that challenged Obama when he was pushing for the TPP. Additionally, he was one of the few hosts that wanted to actually cover Bernie Sanders' campaign. And presumably, since he wouldn't acquiesce to what the network clearly wanted, well, he was fired. And now, several years later, he's confirming what we suspected about MSNBC, that they have a very clear set of requirements with regard to what they expect from their hosts. Now, what he's saying is really a bombshell. So first and foremost, he clears up some misconceptions about RT, the network he's currently employed with. He states that this is his favorite job ever, and he has complete journalistic freedom to express himself there. Whereas with MSNBC, that wasn't necessarily the case. In fact, the president of MSNBC, Phil Griffin, often tried to control the content of their hosts. And I want to make this very clear, and I hope your audience consumes this. There was more oversight and more direction given to me on content at MSNBC than there ever has been here at RT. And I think that it's very sad that that story is not getting out. I think it's uh, many times I was told what to lead with on MSNBC. Many times I was told what I was not going to do. And I've got a story that had I not been involved in it, I would have never believed it. Uh, and Phil Griffin, who I consider a friend to this day, was, was a watchdog, far more than anything I am exposed to here at RT America. Did he tell you what to say? Did he tell you an angle to take? Often. So even though this really isn't too surprising, I find it fascinating because Phil Griffin, president of MSNBC, he controls the content or tries to control the content of his hosts often. Um, but yet, anyone in the mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, they'll maintain that RT, since it receives funding from the Kremlin, is a propaganda network. But here you have a credible former MSNBC host confirming that it's actually RT that gives their hosts more intellectual freedom. Now, he has a really explicit example as to how the president of MSNBC tried to keep their hosts on a leash. Now, he talks about the launch of Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign and what happened when he tried to cover Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign? When Bernie Sanders was announcing that he was going to be a candidate for the nomination of the Democratic Party in Burlington, Vermont, I was the only cable host between Fox, MSNBC, and CNN that was there live to cover it. Now, there were live cameras there, but we had coordinated with the Sanders campaign that at 5 o'clock he was going to make his announcement and we were going to cover this on The Ed Show. I go to Bernie Sanders' house that afternoon and interview in the backyard, about a 15-minute interview. The grandkids are running around. It's a big day for the Sanders family. He's going to announce that he's running for president. We're going to carry it live later on in the day, and we're going to run this one-on-one -on -one tape with Bernie. 3,000 people are there on Lake Champagne. It's five minutes to air, and I get a phone call from Phil Griffin you're not covering this. I said, Phil, 
Bernie Sanders is announcing he's running for president. He's going to be a president. I don't care. You're not covering this. And it got rather contentious. And why, as, why though? I don't. Well, uh, now you're asking me for opinion. I'm giving you fact right now about what happened. Mm-hmm. And other people who were there with me will attest to the fact and back me up that this is what happened. We were told that we had to cover something down in Texas that was totally meaningless uh, and another press conference in Baltimore, which was in, already had been in the news for a few days. We're covering Bernie Sanders live. We're coordinated with his campaign. And I'm told five minutes before, you're not covering Bernie Sanders. Now, let me give you the opinion. I think the Clintons were connected to Andy Lack, connected at the hip. I think that they didn't want anybody in their prime time or any, anywhere in their lineup supporting Bernie Sanders. I think that they were in the tank for Hillary Clinton, and I think it was managed, and 45 days later I was out at MSNBC. And I thought it stunk. They gave me my contract. I never, I signed a uh, non-disclosure agreement and also a no bad-mouthing agreement, which I felt good with because I thought that this was overtime all going to wash out. And I knew if Bernie Sanders didn't win, he was going to run again because the man is determined. So I was patient and took my money and and went on. But the fact of the matter is I, I think I've got a hell of a story to tell. And when you see how the campaign unfolded, Donna Brazil feeding Hillary Clinton questions at the campaign. The DNC undercutting Bernie Sanders. The superdelegates that were organized by Hillary Clinton. I mean, in my state of Minnesota, where I'm a resident and pay taxes, Al Franken and Amy Klobuchar were superdelegates, and despite the fact that Bernie Sanders won Minnesota, they supported Clinton. It was the, the fix was in. The fix was in with the mainstream media. The fix was in with managing the news and shutting down Bernie Sanders. And it wasn't until he started matching the Clintons and raising money that he became, well, we got to cover this guy. But from the start, the Clintons didn't want any competition. They didn't want Bernie Sanders around. They didn't want the Keystone XL pipeline. They didn't want to push her on that issue. They didn't want to push her on free education for all. And they certainly didn't want to push her on, uh, on, the, on the TPP and also universal health care. Those were four main issues that Bernie Sanders, had he not been in the campaign, Hillary Clinton would have never had to address. And so I think the fix was in early on to deep six Bernie. To this day, it kind of pisses me off. Because, I, I, you know, they talk about collusion. There's, there's nothing more than, than collusion than this. And that's what progressives have been saying from the very beginning. There's your collusion right there. Hillary Clinton's campaign colluding with media executives to suppress information about Bernie Sanders' campaign. Now, we don't necessarily have evidence that Phil Griffin and Hillary Clinton were colluding specifically to silence Ed Schultz here, but we do know that Phil Griffin, his name did come up a couple of times in John Podesta's emails when they were released by WikiLeaks. So certainly, um, it's the case that there was very much a blackout of Bernie Sanders' campaign. And when we talked about this blackout of Bernie Sanders' coverage in 2016, we were called conspiracy theorists. And here we have now a former credible MSNBC host confirming what was obvious. Yes, there was very much a blackout. Now, if you don't trust Ed Schultz, well, there's another 
incredible former MSNBC host that has a similar story about how MSNBC tries to do propaganda on behalf of the establishment. Because back in 2011, when Jen Uger of TYT left MSNBC, he talked about a very interesting meeting he had with the president of MSNBC. I got pulled in and they told me, hey, listen, uh, we were just, or it was actually one specific person, the head of MSNBC. He said, I was just in Washington and people in Washington tell me that they're concerned about your tone. I was like, whoa, what? You know, despite all the things that I've said about the mainstream media, I still view that as kind of like theoretical, like a real person, are they really gonna say that? I was like, and I, I'm naively thinking, what does he mean? Did he talk to his friend Bob in Washington? <laughs> Why would you say people in Washington if you meant, oh yeah, I was talking to my buddy down at the shop about you. It just happened to be that he was a person in Washington. You wouldn't frame it that way, right? But I'm still thinking that. And then he gives me the second part of the speech. Hey, listen, Jenk. outsiders are cool. And they wear, I think he might have said something like, they wear leather jackets, they ride bikes. I think I'm an outsider, I don't ride a bike. But <laughs> I have a terrible leather jacket. Anyway, he said, I'd love to be an outsider, outsiders are cool. But we're not, we're insiders. We are the establishment. And I just kind of sat back. I was like, wow, this is it. This is the speech. So he, he said, look, you gotta tone it down. And then he had me talk to one of their top contributors who explained, hey, listen, just take it easy. You know, you're a little tough on the guests and, you know, tone issues and let's have more Republicans on, which was an interesting thing. Now, let me remind you that the media is supposed to challenge the power establishment in Washington, D.C. But here you have Phil Griffin, the president of the so-called liberal news network, telling Jenk that they are the establishment. They are the power core in the United States of America. So when you hear about this liberal media myth, there's no such thing as liberal media. All we have is establishment media that does the bidding of the Democratic Party. That's what MSNBC is. They are the propaganda wing of the Democratic Party in the same way that Fox News is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party. But just because MSNBC is brazenly, I think, doing the bidding of the Democratic Party establishment, that doesn't make them liberal. Because to suggest that means that the Democratic Party establishment itself is liberal when they're not liberal. They're very much conservative, centrist at best, and the best that we get out of some Democrats is that they're center-left. So this is why the Overton window in the country has shifted so far to the right. It's because the mainstream media, they're not doing their job. They are doing everything in their power to suppress actual progressives. Ed Schultz was chewed out by the president of what's supposed to be the left-leaning network when he tried to cover the launch of Bernie Sanders' campaign. How absurd is that? Is this surprising news? Absolutely not. But it's certainly a bombshell, and I hope that we'll get a response from MSNBC, but certainly I don't think they really care. Because so long as they appease their corporate advertisers, which happen to be the same um, donors who are giving to the Democratic Party, then that's all that they care about. So, yeah, mainstream media, it's all about propping up the establishment and the status quo. Not surprising, but certainly when we hear about the specifics, um, the situation is a lot worse than I think a lot of us previously thought.
So it's no secret that the American political establishment hates the fact that Bernie Sanders is America's most popular politician in the country. Because if he runs in 2020, well, obviously, being the most popular politician in the country, he has a huge advantage. So what will the American political establishment do, the aggregate establishment, including the Democratic Party, American oligarchs, and corporate media do to pretty much defeat Bernie Sanders? Well, they're going to do the same thing they did in 2016. They're going to pretend like he doesn't exist. And one journalist published an article in Politico saying Joe Biden is the front runner. Yes, Joe Biden is the front runner. Someone who lost credibility among progressives, lambasted millennials. He's the front runner, not Bernie Sanders, who's only the most popular politician in the country. But nonetheless, when you actually dive into the article, to be fair, it's not as bad as the title suggests. The author argues the former vice president may be loved, but he is also out of step with the post-Trump Democratic Party. Now, for the most part, the journalist who wrote this article, Charlie Matizen, he argues that Joe Biden may not be the best suited to um, run in 2020 because he's really similar to Hillary Clinton and he's a flawed candidate. But even if he has some flaws and this author may criticize him and point out those flaws, he's simultaneously, perhaps inadvertently promoting the idea that Joe Biden is actually a good candidate. And this ultimately will strengthen Joe Biden's candidacy. So even if this article isn't necessarily as bad as the title suggests, it's still problematic. And first and foremost, the most problematic thing about this is in suggesting that, or really declaring that Joe Biden is the front runner. Because what does this do? It legitimizes him. It gets people to believe that he's the front runner. Even if it is the case that some polls do show him leading slightly over Bernie, well, not all polls indicate this. Furthermore, Bernie Sanders has been touring the country, forming coalitions and building grassroots support. And he's now the de facto leader of the Democratic Party and certainly the spiritual leader of the progressive movement. And again, remains the most popular politician in the country. So to promote this idea that Joe Biden is the front runner of all people, well, your argument is going to be used to shield him from legitimate criticism. Because in 2016, what did the establishment do when we criticized Hillary Clinton? They said, look, you can't criticize her because she is the best suited to take on Donald Trump. She's battle tested. So in criticizing her, you're weakening our chances of defeating a Republican. And by saying that Joe Biden is the front runner in 2020, this journalist, either wittingly or unwittingly, is lending credibility to that same argument and shielding Joe Biden from criticism as well, and that's not acceptable. So that's one of the many issues that I take with this article, but to be fair, this author does point out a lot of flaws that Joe Biden has and makes some good points. So it's not all bad. So what this author says is, one of those flaws is the bankruptcy reform bill that Joe Biden championed for years until it passed in 2005. The political taint from that law favored by credit card companies because it made it harder for consumers to get debt relief through bankruptcy shows no sign of subsiding on the left. It surfaced as a thorny issue during Biden's vetting as Barack Obama's running mate in 2008 and reappeared nearly a decade later to haunt Hillary Clinton during her 2016 Democratic primary. The 1994 crime bill is 
is another ticking time bomb from Biden's past as Obama's vice president and a key member of an administration that sought to reorient criminal justice policy, Biden was never truly called to account for his leading role in passing a Clinton administration measure that many in the party believe exacerbated an era of mass incarceration that disproportionately affects racial minorities. But there's no dodging it in the next Democratic primary. Hillary Clinton was confronted on the 2016 campaign trail by Black Lives Matter activists merely for advocating the crime bill's passage as First Lady. Biden, meanwhile, has proudly referred to it as the 1994 Biden crime bill. And he still doesn't fully comprehend its radioactivity, while Biden has pointed to provisions of the bill that have troubled him. As late as 2016, he was still defending it and insisting that he was not at all ashamed of the legislation. There are other issues in Biden's portfolio that would prove problematic with influential factions within the current Democratic Party. Among them is his vote to authorize the use of force in Iraq and his history on abortion rights. Now, obviously, these are all things that progressives like myself will beat Joe Biden over the head with, metaphorically speaking. I'm a liberal, I'm not in favor of violence, but the article itself doesn't necessarily argue that these flaws are critical. In fact, they still maintain that Joe Biden is one of the few national Democrats that has clout among working class voters and that he still has a lot of goodwill among a lot of voters and that he's politically astute and of course, he'll be the most qualified candidate for the job. So overall, this article really had me conflicted because it's one of the few mainstream articles written about Joe Biden that really pauses to ask, should he be running in 2020? Do we really need Joe Biden at a time when there's this anti-establishment fervor in the country, especially among the left? But at the same time, it promotes this really harmful idea that Joe Biden is the front runner when that's just factually incorrect. That's not true. To unilaterally declare him as the front runner, again, that sets up this situation where he's going to be shielded from criticism because if he's the front runner, you don't want to make sure that, you know, uh, we harm his chances against Donald Trump by criticizing him. But I mean, the same could be true for Bernie Sanders. Even though I don't necessarily agree with this argument, it's just one of the tools at the Democratic Party establishment's disposal to basically downplay legitimate flaws and criticisms that progressives like myself will inevitably lob against people like Joe Biden. And you can bet your ass, we're going to be fierce in our criticism of Joe Biden. I don't support Joe Biden. I won't support Joe Biden. And if he's going to run, then yes, every single flaw you can imagine, we will bring up because we're done playing nice with the Democratic Party establishment. They literally rigged the primary in 2016 against our candidate. We're not playing games anymore. So if you think you're going to get through a primary unscathed and you're a neoliberal corporate Democrat, it's not going to happen. So getting back to the article, to declare him the front runner, that's incredibly problematic. And now guess what we're going to see? We're going to see the same sentiment echoed across Twitter, neoliberal Twitter specifically. Joe Biden's a front runner. Joe Biden's a front runner. Bernie Sanders should just, you know, back off and let Joe Biden win because he's the front runner. I mean, if you're going to criticize Joe Biden, then criticize Joe Biden. You don't have to, I guess, inadvertently, seemingly prop him up in the process and, um, you know, um, inflate his ego even more than it already is. He's not the right person for the job, obviously. And if he runs, I mean, I think he probably could beat Donald Trump. It's not that difficult of a task. But at the same time, are his chances worse against Donald Trump than, say, Bernie? Of course.
couple of weeks ago on the program, I told you about how the Israeli military has been brutalizing peaceful Palestinian protesters. So along the Israel-Gaza border, they've killed as many as 17 and injured up to 1,400 peaceful protesters. Now, this received little to no coverage in the mainstream media, with the exception of MSNBC's Chris Hayes, who did a surprisingly excellent job laying out the details in an actually objective way. As for Washington, though, lawmakers didn't really seem to mind the fact that Israel was brutalizing peaceful protesters, with the exception, of course, of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who called out the Israeli military's violation of Palestinian human rights. But aside from those few exceptions, pretty much the aggregate power establishment in the country, that includes uh, the political establishment, the mainstream media establishment, they were silent. They had absolutely nothing to say. And when you look at government, certainly we maintain that we care about human rights, specifically within Donald Trump's administration. UN Ambassador Nikki Haley has reiterated multiple times that the United States has and always will speak out in favor of human rights. We will condemn countries that are aggressive and violate human rights. In fact, this is what she said not too long ago. The U.S. is always going to speak out on human rights. There are times we can work with countries and there are times when we see human rights issues that we're going to call them out on it. But when they go against our values, we are going to say something. That's just who we are as a country. That's what we've always been great at. So she's making it very clear here. Even if one of our allies like Israel decides to violate human rights, we're going to call them out. We're going to speak out against these human rights violations. So clearly, when she found out about the brutalization of peaceful Palestinian protesters, I mean, she spoke out immediately, right? Well, this is the response that UN Ambassador Nikki Haley had when she learned about what Israel's military is doing. Oh, that's right. Um, all we have is crickets because she actually hasn't said a damn thing about what Israel is doing. And her silence would be a problem in and of itself, but it goes much deeper in terms of how problematic her response has been. Because as the UN ambassador, she's actually unilaterally blocking the UN Security Council from releasing a statement in support of Palestinians right to demonstrate peacefully and she's also blocking an independent investigation from occurring and let me remind you that as ambassador to the un for the united states she is the one vote against it it's her specifically that's not only just refusing to speak out in favor of palestinian rights but she's blocking the un security council from simply declaring that palestinian protesters have the right to peacefully protest now what was it again that she said about human rights? The U.S. is always going to speak out on human rights. Always, 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 always. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got bad news for you, Nikki, because if you actually want to prove to the world that the United States really does care about human rights and that what you said wasn't just rhetoric, then you actually have to do meaningful things to demonstrate that you care about human rights, including the human rights of Palestinians. And condemnation of excessive force on behalf of Israel is certainly one way to do that. But she's a hypocrite. She claims that the United States cares about human rights and will always speak out on behalf of human rights, but 
she only does that when it's convenient for her. But she had the opportunity to right this wrong and actually send a message to the Palestinian protesters who have been killed and brutalized. And, um, of course, she decided not to take that opportunity to right this wrong. We wonder why you're blocking the investigation into the Israeli use of excessive force in Gaza. The international community would like that investigation to go forward. You know, Israel deserves to be held accountable just like any other country. The killing of peaceful protesters, including a journalist wearing a press vest in Gaza, and the UN is being blocked from investigating. And she's attending as a guest right now? Well, we're all here as guests. We're all guests. So that was a video released by Code Pink, who asked her why it was the case that she was blocking an investigation or simply the declaration that Palestinians have the right to protest. And Medea, the person who was asking her the question there, she didn't even get halfway through her question. And uh, Nikki just went back to playing on her phone. That's how much she cares about human rights. Look, here's the thing. American exceptionalism, it's delusion. We are not the good guys. We are the bad guys. We don't care about human rights. If Nikki Haley truly cared about human rights, then she would more forcefully condemn the genocide that's going on in Myanmar against the Rohingya. She would actually condemn the genocide that Saudi Arabia is committing with our weapons in Yemen currently. She would talk to Donald Trump about him befriending Duterte, the president of the Philippines, who is an actual criminal. Duterte is waging a war on his own people, and there are numerous extrajudicial killings that he's executed, and Trump befriended him. Nikki Haley hasn't said anything about that. And if Nikki Haley's so-called support for human rights was anything other than just political bluster, then she would have spoken out a long time ago against all of these things I just mentioned. She'd resign in protest when she learned that Donald Trump asked the CIA why they waited to bomb a house that had civilians in it. But Nikki Haley like the rest of Donald Trump's administration and the broader uh, government in the United States, is nothing more than a hypocrite. We only speak out in favor of human rights when it suits our geopolitical interests. So, Donald Trump is waging a lot of wars around the world, but him and his Republican cronies just initiated a new war here at home. They've effectively declared war on the poor based on a slew of new policy proposals They've just rolled out, some of which have already been implemented. So according to Julia Conley of Common Dreams, social welfare advocates on Friday denounced a proposal included in a draft of the 2018 Farm Bill, which would impose work requirements on most adults who receive benefits from the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, known as SNAP, commonly called food stamps. The proposal represents the first concrete attempt by Republicans to erode the social safety net since President Donald Trump took office. Conway's proposal would mandate that adults between the ages of 18 and 59 work part-time jobs or be enrolled in at least 20 hours per week of job training. As many as 7 million Americans are expected to be affected by the new regulations, and the Congressional Budget Office estimates that 1 million people could be kicked off the program if the new rules are passed. Democrats on the House Agriculture Committee 
argued that the 2013 Farm Bill implemented pilot programs to test workforce training initiatives, experiments which have not yet been completed and have uncovered challenges for families who use SNAP benefits. Recipients have struggled with unreliable transportation and childcare responsibilities that have kept them from meeting the work requirements. Requiring food stamp recipients to find employment is likely to simply discriminate against the poor rather than help people to enter the workforce, wrote Elizabeth Wolkmore and Stacey Dean at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. These workers need SNAP. They typically work in jobs with low wages, fluctuating hours, and poor benefits. And because these jobs are unstable, low-wage workers face periods of unemployment. A sweeping work requirement would create a huge bureaucratic system to track these workers, introducing onerous paperwork and administrative requirements while doing nothing to help them get better paying more stable jobs. Conway's proposal comes after reports that the Trump administration is also considering a drug testing requirement for SNAP recipients, a possibility that the House Agriculture Committee is likely to debate starting next week. So they're trying to make it so that way if you are receiving food stamps and you're not working, you lose your benefits completely. And see, for me, this really hits close to home because there was a time in my life where I was on food stamps, but I was also unemployed and I couldn't find work because it was really difficult to find an employer that would want to work around my full-time school schedule. So if I were still in that predicament today, then I would have had to consider quitting school in order to get a job if I wanted to keep my food stamps. And now there are people who may have to make that very difficult decision today. And think about this arbitrary requirement to drug test recipients of SNAP. So if you are the child of a parent who is addicted to a substance, well, you don't get to eat. You get to starve because a billionaire named Donald Trump says so because it would make him feel better. And just from a moral standpoint, why shouldn't drug addicts be able to eat? There's no logic to this. It's just about punishing the poor. Trump and Republicans probably think that this will encourage them to spend their money on food instead of on drugs, but that's not the way that substance addiction works. It's ignorant. Furthermore, morally speaking, even if you extend that logic to drugs like marijuana and someone who tests positive for it, why shouldn't poor people be allowed to smoke marijuana? Someone should lose their food stamps if they smoke marijuana? That makes no sense to me. If you have anxiety and the one thing that calms you down is marijuana, you get to starve. If you are working a shitty job, you're being paid slave wages, you come home and the one thing that helps you relax is smoking marijuana while you play video games. Donald Trump wants to take that away from people. See, it's not just about taking away our social safety net and making the poor poor. He wants to really punish these poor people to make sure that they are stripped of all human dignity and there's no happiness in their lives whatsoever. If you're poor, you just have to suffer. You don't get any happiness whatsoever. Nothing. They're sentencing poor people to suffer even more and to take food off their table. If these poor people, these peasants to them, do something that they deem inappropriate. But that's just what Republicans want to do to attack our social safety net legislatively, but make no mistake about it. Donald Trump is targeting our social safety net unilaterally by instituting 
a new set of executive orders that will chisel away even further at our social safety net programs. So as Nathaniel Wexel of The Hill reports, the Trump administration is seeking to completely revamp the country's social safety net, targeting recipients of Medicaid, food stamps, and housing assistance. Trump is doing so through a sweeping executive order that was quietly issued earlier this week and that largely flew under the radar. It calls on the Departments of Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, Agriculture, and other agencies across the federal government to craft new rules requiring that beneficiaries of a host of programs work or lose their benefits. Trump argued with the order, which has been in the works since last year, that the programs have grown too large while failing to move needy people out of government help. The order is directed at any program that provides means-tested assistance or other assistance that provides benefits to people, households, or families that have low incomes. So according to Donald Trump, well, since these people are on these programs, since they require government assistance for such long periods of time, well, clearly it's not because they just need the help. It has to be because they're at fault. It has to be because they're lazy. Well, what I don't understand with these Republicans who complain about people who are on public assistance is that why don't they do things that would actually help poor people and get them off of public assistance? Do you see Donald Trump advocating for a living wage for workers? Because that would certainly help. In fact, no, he thinks that wages are too high in this country. He said it on the campaign trail. Do you see Donald Trump advocating for a federal jobs program or technical training of some sort for welfare recipients that would increase the chances that they could land a better paying job? Do you see him championing a legitimate infrastructure bill that would create jobs for thousands of people? No, by imposing all of these new requirements, you may actually, you know, execute that goal that you want to get them off of public assistance, but you are not going to ameliorate poverty. You're not. And that's what these programs are designed to tackle. They're supposed to target poverty. They're supposed to help people who are impoverished. But Donald Trump is just choosing to arbitrarily attack these people and punish them. He's just increasing suffering on taxpaying Americans because it'll make him feel better. And he doesn't care about the reality of the rigged economy leaders like himself helped foster. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about how difficult it is for someone to find a job in today's economic environment. You, you just, you can't find a job. And if you find a job, odds are it's going to be a low paying job, which doesn't pay all the bills. It doesn't uh, pay for rent. If you have children, you're just screwed apparently. But he doesn't want to, you know, increase the wages of workers. He just wants, wants to punish them and make their lives miserable because he is a billionaire. He's never worried about putting food on the table a single day in his life. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. His father gave him a, quote, small loan of a million dollars to get his businesses uh, started. And then when he died, he left everything to Donald Trump, millions of dollars. So Donald Trump doesn't know what it's like to suffer. So in his eyes, as a greedy oligarch, he condescendingly looks down at the poor and thinks that, you know, they're just lazy. They, they you know, need to get their shit together. And by throwing them off of these programs, and that's going to motivate them to get their shit together. No, they're already motivated to get off, off of welfare. Who wants to stay on welfare? Who wants to stay and remain poor? All of our goals is to succeed in life. They're not on welfare because they love being on welfare. They're on welfare because that's how they put food on the table for their children. 
Donald Trump could never understand that. But if you think that that was all that they're doing, well, it's not. Because according to Social Security Watchdog, Social Security Works, 233 members of Congress just voted to steal Social Security's $2.9 trillion surplus. They explain, when Social Security runs a surplus, Social Security holds the funds in a trust. Social Security currently has a $2.9 trillion accumulated surplus. In the guise of a so-called balanced budget amendment, 233 members of the House of Representatives just voted to pretend that the accumulated surplus does not exist. And can you guess the party that predominantly supported this amendment? Republicans, only seven Democrats signed on to this. And those seven Democrats, they should be ousted, they should be primary, they should lose their seat. But that kind of shows you where the Republican Party's priorities lie. And think about if they're able to successfully snatch up Social Security surplus. What are they going to do? They're going to say, well, look, the program is insolvent. So we've got to cut Social Security. We've got to raise the retirement age. We've got to make sure that we pay out less benefits. They're literally robbing us by doing this, if they can get this through. Social Security is a program that we pay into. That's our money. So in snatching that surplus, they're literally taking money from us. They're robbing us. So Donald Trump and his Republican thugs are waging a war on the poor. This is an all-out war on the poor. And they're doing it through multiple fronts legislatively. They're doing it... Um, through the White House, with executive orders. It's a shame. I, I mean, I, they're brazenly um, trying to fuck over the poor. They don't even care how bad this looks. They just gave a multi-trillion dollar tax cut to the rich, and now they're trying to punish the poor. Something's got to change in this country. <laughs> Something. A lot of things have to change in this country. But one thing that is for sure, is that this party has to collapse. Everyone within the Republican Party, they have to lose their job. They need to be on public assistance and food stamps. Because what they are doing, it's morally reprehensible and they don't even feel bad about it at all. If you've been paying attention to the news and if you're not buying into the mainstream media's propaganda, especially what's been espoused on Fox News, then you'll know that it's not a controversial statement to say that Donald Trump has done next to nothing for American workers. However, there's one exception. Now, I gave him credit when he was first elected for unilaterally withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership because that would be an absolute nightmare for workers. But little by little, it seemed as though his... Supposed aversion to the TPP was disingenuous because when he would travel abroad to Asian countries in particular, he would negotiate bilateral trade agreements with them that contained provisions that were similar to what we saw in the TPP. So it seemed as though he actually wasn't that against the TPP, but now he's really, he's not hiding it at all. He just came out in favor of the TPP because we have this headline in the New York Times, which says Trump proposes rejoining Trans-Pacific Partnership. So after he makes it one of his first priorities when he's elected and sworn in in 2017 to withdraw from the TPP, fast forward to 2018 and he wants to unilaterally rejoin the TPP. You can't make this stuff up. So according to Anna Swatson of the New York Times, she reports 
President Trump, in a sharp reversal, told a gathering of farm state lawmakers and governors on Thursday morning that the United States was looking into rejoining a multi-country trade agreement known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a deal he pulled out of days after assuming the presidency. Larry Kudlow, Mr. Trump's top economic advisor, said in an interview on Thursday with the New York Times that the request to revisit the deal was somewhat spontaneous. This whole trade thing has exploded, Mr. Kudlow said. There's no deadline. We'll pull a team together, but we haven't even done. I mean, it just happened a couple of hours ago. Mr. Trump's decision to throw out the Trans-Pacific Partnership and his pledge to tear up the North American Free Trade Agreement were bedrock promises of his populist campaign, which centered heavily heavily on unfair trade practices that he said had robbed American manufacturers and workers. But rejoining it could be a complex task. The remaining countries like Japan moved ahead without the United States and spent months renegotiating a pact before finally agreeing to a sweeping multinational deal this year. Mr. Trump, who has demanded that any such deal benefit the United States, is unlikely to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership without further concessions for what he has criticized as a terrible agreement. That could complicate talks since Japan maintains that it has already given all the concessions it could, said William A. Range, a trade expert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Yoshihide Suga, Japan's chief cabinet secretary on Friday, cautioned against any efforts to change the agreement to accommodate Mr. Trump, calling it a well-balanced pact that addressed the needs of the 11 nations that signed the deal. It is also unclear how serious Mr. Trump is about rejoining. In the past, the president has floated policies that appeared to run counter to his earlier positions, like cooperating with Democrats on legislation governing immigration and gun rights, then quickly abandoned them. So, there you have it. He wants to rejoin the TPP. Now, we can be extra kind to Donald Trump and say that he doesn't want to rejoin and that he's being truthful when he says that he actually wants it to be a better deal for workers, but his policies have been a disaster for workers, and when you look at the bilateral arrangements he's negotiated, well, they are very TPP-esque. Hence why a lot of us said he resurrected the TPP, but now he's just explicitly coming out and saying, look, I, I support the TPP. Now, typically when the New York Times or the Washington Post breaks a story like this about Donald Trump, since it obviously makes him look like a flip-flopper, he'll take to Twitter and call it fake news and then call the whole story into question. But he actually confirmed via Twitter that, yeah, this isn't fake news after all. He released a tweet saying, quote, would only join TPP if the deal were substantially better than the deal offered to President Obama. We already have bilateral deals with six of the 11 nations in TPP and are working to make a deal with the biggest of those nations, Japan, who has hit us hard on trade for years. If you believed in Donald Trump, if you voted for him because you were one of the workers who was affected by former disastrous so-called free trade deals like NAFTA, then um, he betrayed you. But I mean, it, this isn't the first time he betrayed workers. He's done a number of things to betray workers. But really, I mean, literally the one thing you can point to and say that he did good on was his decision to withdraw from the TPP. But now there's literally nothing good about Donald Trump. He's done zero things for American workers. Literally zero. 
I can't point to anything he's done since he's been sworn in that has been good for workers. A lot of people in the mainstream media will point to his tax plan, but that's good for the rich. In fact, if you make less than $75,000 per year, you're actually going to see a tax increase over the next decade. So any and all of the policies that he has either signed into law or enforced unilaterally with executive orders, they've been disastrous for workers. But that shouldn't surprise you. He's a billionaire. He doesn't care at all about workers. All he cares about is enriching himself and setting himself up for a cushy life once he um, retires. That's all this is about. So Donald Trump is a fraud. If you needed any more evidence of that um, and you're still not convinced, I just don't know what to say. You've drunk in the Kool-Aid and um, you're buying into everything he's selling, but you shouldn't. Donald Trump is a liar, a fraud, and a phony, and he's always been a sleazy businessman, and that's never going to change. Even though it's the case that five governors have decided to enforce net neutrality unilaterally using executive orders, I think legislation is probably preferable because in the future, if you elect a governor who is not in favor of net neutrality, then that individual can unilaterally overturn the decision of their predecessors. So when it comes to legislation, if a future governor is against legislation that protects net neutrality, well, it's not so easy to overturn it. So thus far, only two states, Oregon and Washington, have actually passed legislation to protect net neutrality. And those states are the most secure pending any litigation against those states. But it seems as though California was poised to become the third state that would in fact pass net neutrality legislation. And this legislation in California that we're seeing was particularly important because if it passes, it would be the strongest net neutrality legislation in the country by a mile. In fact, it even goes further than the 2015 order that the FCC passed when they actually defined the internet as a utility under Title II. And what's really important about California here is that if they are able to pass this legislation, well, they could potentially set a new standard for the country that other states might be influenced to follow. And as John Brodkin of Ars Technica points out, the prospect of net neutrality protections this strong really is terrifying to internet service providers. They hate it even more than the FCC rules they pressured the FCC to repeal in 2017. So this is what's specifically in California's net neutrality bill that is terrifying internet service providers. Carl Bode of Vice Motherboard explains California State Senator Scott Wiener's SB 822 largely mirrors the 2015 FCC net neutrality rules ISPs like Comcast have worked tirelessly to eliminate. The bill prohibits ISPs from blocking, throttling, or otherwise hurting competitors. It would also prohibit ISPs from striking anti-competitive paid prioritization deals, letting companies buy a network advantage. In some ways, California's proposal goes even further than the FCC's 2015 rules. More specifically, SB 822 takes aim at zero rating or the practice of exempting an ISP's own content or the content of a partner company from usage caps and overage fees. Usage caps on fixed broadband networks are already arbitrary, annoying, and unnecessary, and the practice of exempting some companies can easily disadvantage smaller companies and nonprofits. Without restrictions on zero rating, ISPs like AT&T, Verizon, and Comcast 
have begun letting their own streaming services bypass usage cap restrictions while still penalizing streaming services like Netflix. It's one of several ways incumbent ISPs plan to use a lack of competition in broadband to try and hamstring emerging competition in the TV sector. So obviously, if you care about net neutrality, this legislation is incredibly important because it not only undoes the damage caused by the FCC's repeal of Title II in 2017, but it fills in loopholes that were left open by the 2015 net neutrality order by the FCC, where they secured it as a utility under Title II. So this is really important. So as you could have guessed, since this legislation includes language that's so strong in favor of net neutrality, well, internet service provider lobbyists are doing everything in their power to make sure that they fight against this. See, but what they're doing is they're targeting Democrats in particular to get them to um, basically water down this legislation. And the bad news is that it's working. Some Democrats are, in fact, trying to fight against this bill and trying to water it down. So Bode continues with SB 822 slated for hearings before the California Energy Utilities and Communications Committee this week. Activists note ISP lobbyists are hard at work trying to derail the bill, claiming, as we saw on the federal level, that there's nothing wrong with the uncompetitive broadband sector and that consumer protections aren't necessary. Killing the bill outright could prove difficult given public anger, so consumer advocates say that lobbyists have convinced some Democratic California lawmakers to push for a massive watering down of the legislation. They say the end product of that lobbying is a new committee analysis recommending the weakening of many key provisions. Consumer groups say the recommendations include trimming back oversight of the kind of interconnection feuds that resulted in Netflix customers seeing lower service a few years ago after ISPs were routinely accused of letting their peering points intentionally congest to drive up costs for content companies, complaints that magically evaporated in the face of FCC rules. The committee's analysis appears to manufacture some claims out of whole cloth. Not only does it try to falsely claim that SBA22 tries to prohibit peering agreements, it inaccurately argues that ISPs would face financial hardships due to the protections. You'll notice some similarities between ISP lobbying claims and the committee's analysis, which tries to insist that policing such deals will result in harm to lower-income Californians. A long-term absence of other mechanisms to pay for infrastructure upgrades could increase cost pressures for consumers, the analysis says. It is likely that cost increases for consumers would disproportionately impact lower-income Californians and increase needs for universal service programs that supply broadband access at affordable rates. Again, though, reasonable net neutrality rules only prohibit anti-competitive prioritization and interconnection, and while ISPs routinely like to claim that net neutrality hurts their ability to make a living, analysis of their earnings reports, not to mention public CEO statements, routinely undermine these claims. So think about how sneaky this is. Democrats in California know that they can't just outright kill this bill because there would be mass outrage. I mean, there'd be huge backlash. Their constituents would not be happy with that because obviously a majority of the country supports net neutrality, especially the constituents of Democratic voters. So what are they doing instead? Well, since they still want to serve lobbying firms that represent internet service providers like Verizon and AT&T, well, they're just trying to water down this bill instead so that way they won't sound any alarms. 
That's what they're doing. That's how sneaky these sellout lawmakers are in California that are supposed to be liberal. And as they do the bidding of lobbyists for the internet service providers, well, they're hoping that Californians won't notice as they water down this bill in committee. But let me send a message to these Democrats here who are the biggest sellouts in the country. You don't represent lobbying firms. You weren't elected by these lobbying firms. You were elected by your constituents, and clearly, they support net neutrality. There's no question about it. So every single Democrat who is acting to water down this bill they should be absolutely ashamed of themselves. I mean, that goes without saying. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you know that you're screwing over the people and you do it anyway, but you do it quietly so they don't find out that you're screwing them over? All it takes is pressure from internet service providers and they fold like a deck of cards. Doesn't take that much. So this is really a problem that we're going to see as more and more states consider this type of legislation. Even if a state in particular doesn't have language as strong as the um, as what we see in the California bill, they're still going to be putting pressure on lawmakers, particularly Democratic Party lawmakers, to get them to fold. And in some cases, since the Democratic Party lacks both a spine and courage, it's likely that that could happen. So at this point, I don't necessarily know that this bill is a sure bet. It really seemed as though California would become the third state to pass net neutrality legislation. And they would set a new standard, you know, for the whole country. But now that's thrown, thrown into, into question. Even if this passes, if it's watered down, if Internet service providers can still violate net neutrality, then what's the point? So certainly if this passes, we have to look at the final bill and see the end result before we celebrate. But certainly, this is troubling. And if you live in the state of California, I would advise you to show up to your state legislature and put pressure on these politicians because they know this is popular. They know what's at stake. But, you know, they listen more to lobbyists than ordinary Americans. And that's a damn shame. So by the time most people on this channel see this video, it will be the day that officially marks the beginning of the end of net neutrality because the FCC's December 2017 repeal of Title II starts to go into effect today. Not fully, but partially. Now, as Jacob Kastronakis of The Verge writes, parts of the change are set to go into effect on April 23rd. However, the bulk of the order, which reverses the tough net neutrality rules put into place in 2015, still doesn't have a date for when it'll be official. That's because the rules modify data collection requirements and therefore have to be approved by the Office of Management and Budget. Once that happens, the FCC will publish another document in the Federal Register announcing when net neutrality protections are actually done for. The publication means that a new fight around net neutrality is about to begin. States and other parties may now be able to sue over the rules. Some have already gotten started and a battle in Congress will kick off over a vote to reverse the order entirely. 
While that fight likely won't go far in Congress since Republicans by and large oppose net neutrality and control both chambers, there will likely be a long and heated legal battle around the corner for the FCC's new policy. The FCC's new rules are really a lack of rules. Its restoring internet freedom order entirely revokes the net neutrality regulations put in place back in 2015 and replaces them with basically nothing. Internet providers can now block, throttle, and prioritize content if they want to. The only real rule here is that they have to disclose if they're doing any of this. And really, I think that in suggesting that they have to be transparent if they choose to block or throttle content, I think that that's a misnomer. It's not really transparency because all they have to do is include a little clause in their uh, user agreement or terms of service about how they are blocking certain websites, and that's it. They don't have to hold a press conference to announce that they're going to be um, charging Netflix users an additional $10 per month. They don't have to do that. So this is absolutely terrifying. We are now officially entering an era of no net neutrality, and certainly the entire repeal order is going to be rolled out gradually. But what we're going to see now, I think, is we're going to see states ramp up their effort to pass net neutrality uh, legislation. And what I find really inspirational is that more than half of the states in this country are currently weighing net neutrality bills in their state legislatures. And I think that that's great. They're taking action. Now, does that imply that every single one of those states who are considering it will pass it? It does not. But Really, what will make a difference is the amount of pressure constituents exert on state lawmakers. And if you have a state whose lawmakers introduced the bill, then I would highly encourage you to take action immediately. Call them up. Um, make sure that you lobby them to get them to sign on to this bill and co-sponsor it. It's really important. And look, even once the entire repeal order that the FCC's Republican majority passed on December 14th, even once the whole thing goes into effect, I don't think we're going to see internet service providers immediately roll out new plans and brazenly do paid prioritization and blocking. I mean, certainly there's going to be some exceptions and they're not going to be upfront about it, but I don't think we're going to see that all at once. I think that we're going to see this gradual implementation of blocking and throttling. It's kind of like zero rating. So really, when you see these data carriers like Verizon say that their own uh, video streaming service is exempt from data caps, whereas if you use Netflix, that's going to go against your data. Well, that was really something that was rolled out gradually. It was something that was more subtle because, I mean, what's the, what's the old saying? Um, you know, if you want to, I'm going to fuck this up. If you throw a frog in a pot with boiling hot water, it's going to jump out. But if you if you put that frog in the pot and you gradually turn up the heat, he's going to be less likely to notice it. Um, and that's really what I think we're going to see here, but I could be wrong. I'm not 100% sure. I mean, certainly with Comcast, if you are a customer of Comcast and you get your internet through them, then they still have signed an agreement which prohibits them from blocking or throttling all the way up until September of 2018. So even though this is officially the beginning of the end and we're entering a really new terrifying era of no net neutrality in this country. Understand that there are still things that you can do personally to make sure that net neutrality is protected in your state. And that may require you to call your governor and let him or her know that 
they should enforce net neutrality unilaterally with an executive order. But the long-term goal, I think, and what would be um, more concrete and difficult to overturn would be legislation. There are states that are making progress, but we're seeing a lot of pushback from lobbyists. I mean, the state of California comes to mind. Democrats are beginning to cave. So this is why I tell you guys, you've got to keep a constant amount of pressure on lawmakers because there's a lot of forces. There's a lot of spending being done against net neutrality by internet service providers. They don't want us to make any progress because if we are able to save net neutrality, these companies, they're looking at billions of dollars that they won't be able to make in profits. But, you know, with net neutrality on the books, that stops them from profiting off of ripping off consumers. So look, there's a lot at stake here. You have to act if you care about net neutrality. But, you know, I just, I had to make a video letting you all know, April 23rd, uh, the beginning of the end is here. Is this permanent? Not necessarily. There could be, you know, a different makeup of the FCC in a couple of years that will overturn Ajit Pai's decision as he overturned his predecessor's decision. So, you know, it's not all grim. I don't want you to think that this is the end permanently. But just know that we do have to take a lot of action in the short term to protect net neutrality until we are able to change the makeup of the FCC. So, um, there you have it. You've got to continue this fight. It's tiring. It's exhausting, you know, and there are other issues. But if you care about this, then I really think you should rally around it. And I would encourage you to try to influence your friends and family to start speaking out and sharing articles about net neutrality as well. Because if you care about other issues, then net neutrality is what really allows us freedom on the Internet to promote other ideas that you don't hear in the mainstream media. So you've got to fight for it. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. As you'll recall, back in late 2017, Donna Brazil, former interim DNC chair, let us know about a joint fundraising agreement that Hillary Clinton's team signed with the DNC that allowed her to essentially take full control of the DNC. She controlled their press releases. They controlled uh, funding. So essentially what Hillary Clinton did was rob the DNC even more than President Obama was robbing the DNC. But Hillary Clinton is still robbing the DNC till this very day. Journalist Walker Bragman reports in 2018, the DNC paid $570,000 to Onward Together for list acquisition. This comes at a time when the organization is having difficulty funding state parties. Starting on December 12, 2017 and ending in late February 2018, while the DNC was making its payments to Clinton's group, the DCCC paid Onward Together more than $700,000 for, quote, generic committee list rental. It is important to clarify that the DNC's agreement to pay Onward Together was entered into before Tom Perez became chair. By October of 2018, the payments will total $1.6 million, more than the DNC has thus far spent on any single state party. So understand, Onward Together, which is the super PAC that Hillary Clinton created after she lost to Donald Trump, that super PAC is being paid by the Democratic Party's organizations that are supposed to focus on getting Democrats elected. So, combined, the DCCC and DNC have paid, onward together, $1.6 million. Money 
that could be going to state parties. Now let's get back to the reasoning here. The DNC is paying onward together for list acquisition. Does anyone know what that means? I don't. Uh, and then the DCCC is paying her for generic committee list rental. These aren't real things. List acquisition, that's not really a thing. Do you think that this brand new super PAC that was just started in 2017 has any list that's worth uh, $570,000? It's not. And still, we have state parties that are struggling, and Clinton is still robbing them. Now, Walker here is a little bit more kind to Tom Perez than I am, because as the DNC chair, put a stop to this, speak out against this. He could have at least been transparent with us when we learned about the JFA that Donna Brazil told us about. He could have said, well, look, you know, there's still some ties, monetarily at least, to Hillary Clinton's machine. We're still paying her super PAC, or we are paying their super PAC. I mean, this is a huge scandal. Hillary Clinton is still robbing state parties, even if she's not a candidate, she's not involved, she has no real political power other than influence. Her super PAC is robbing state parties. That's money that could be going to state parties. Even if I'm not, uh, you know, enthusiastic about Democrats, certainly I could identify the objective fact that they're better than Republicans. So, you know, it's preferable if more Democrats win than Republicans. So you have to have money at the state level in order to do that. But we have Hillary Clinton that for some reason is getting all this money, $1.6 million that should be going to Democratic Party candidates. Now, the argument here is going to be inevitably from the establishment that, you know, Hillary Clinton's super PAC, its goal is, you know, aligned with the DNC and DCCC. What she wants to do is elect Democrats. But uh, if Hillary Clinton is involved in electing Democrats... Uh, that's going to hurt their cause. Any Democrat who's affiliated with Hillary Clinton, anyone who has Hillary Clinton come out and campaign for her, that's going to hurt their causes and empower Republicans. Hillary Clinton is the most toxic political figure in the country besides Donald Trump. People don't like her. Liberals don't like her. Her own party doesn't like her. Even people who are Senate Democrats like Claire McCaskill and uh, Tim Ryan, who's in the House, they've spoken out against her because her continued presence is bringing down the aggregate Democratic Party. So why is it that the DNC and the DCCC are still paying her money, this time through her super PAC? This is a gigantic scandal. I don't, I don't know how else to say this. Now, certainly, you know, this goes without saying, we still need more details. Um, hopefully, Walker will write up a full article on this. Hopefully, there'll be some more investigative reporting, but certainly the fact that all this money is being funneled to Hillary Clinton's super PAC. It's mind-boggling to me. This is nothing more than corruption, and I'd like to see the agreement that she signed or her super PAC signed. It, it had to have been recent because she just formed her super PAC in 2017. So I'd like to see that agreement and why they're paying her all this money. So when former Sex in the City actress Cynthia Nixon first announced that she would be running against Andrew Cuomo to be the next governor of New York, I was sort of ambivalent. I didn't really know what to think about it because a lot of these celebrities and actors and actresses who are liberals, they're usually just limousine liberals. They don't actually seem to know anything about the real struggle that faces ordinary Americans. But Cynthia Nixon quickly 
earned a lot of credibility, you know, not just with myself, but among the progressive community, because one, Zephyr Teachout came out and endorsed her almost immediately, which says a lot. Zephyr Teachout is a progressive heavyweight. If she is backing you, then um, you're certainly someone who's on my radar. But then Cynthia Nixon began to really speak out against the Democratic Party establishment, and recently, she stated that she welcomes the Democratic Party establishment's hate because she knows that she's kind of a thorn in their side. Think of the things that she's endorsed. Medicare for all. Really, she's the future of the progressive movement. And I never thought that I would say this about a celebrity. I mean, I'm not familiar with her work, but certainly everything that she's talking about politically and policy-wise, it resonates with me a lot. So certainly her insurgent campaign against Andrew Cuomo from the left is turning out to be one of the most interesting stories of the 2018 midterm elections. And I've officially, I mean, I'm all in. I've drunk the Cynthia Nixon Kool-Aid. So this brings me to a broader point. I think Bernie Sanders should endorse Cynthia Nixon. I mean, does she really need his endorsement at this point? Not necessarily. But this will allow progressives to know, progressives who are still skeptical, to know that she's not just like these other limousine liberals. She's actually progressive. She actually really cares about the policy issues. And there's nobody speaking out louder against money and politics, against legalized bribery than her right now. And the great thing is that she actually has a chance of winning. She has more name recognition than Andrew Cuomo because she's an actress. She's a, she's a huge actress. So this came out of nowhere. Cynthia Nixon just randomly became a hero for the progressive left. And I think that if Bernie Sanders were to endorse her, really, she would be unstoppable. She doesn't need it again. But it would allow her to get that street cred among the progressive community for people who haven't looked into her further, who are just, you know, skeptical like me, because I was skeptical at first. But she's she's great. So, Bernie, if you are watching this, please endorse her. And, uh, you know, I hope that our revolution endorses her if they haven't already. If she were to win, she could potentially be the future of the progressive movement. And to me, that's really exciting. We need more leaders to step up and take the mantle that Bernie Sanders has created. So, um, Cynthia Nixon, 2018, who knew that, you know, I'd be this excited over a celebrity when we have a, a reality TV show star as the president. So, um, but you know, the policy, it speaks for itself. She's fantastic. The Koch brothers donated $87,000 to Andrew Cuomo when he first ran in 2010 because they knew a good investment when they saw one. They knew that whether or not he called himself a Democrat, his policies were going to benefit corporations like theirs and billionaires like them. And they were dead right. Since taking office, Andrew Cuomo has given massive tax breaks to corporations and the super rich. While he has decimated our infrastructure and starved our state, its cities, and its rural areas of their most basic services. His inhumane budgets have been passed on the backs of our children, our elderly, our working class, and people of color. And we hear all the time about how the big money interests control D.C., but if Washington is a swamp, Albany is a cesspool. Andrew Cuomo promised to clean up Albany, 
but instead he and his cronies have cleaned up for themselves. There is a reason that people close to Andrew Cuomo keep winding up under indictment for corruption. His right-hand man, Joe Prococo, was just convicted of selling his office to the highest bidder. Cuomo has built a $31 million war chest with the donations of millionaires, billionaires, and corporations. But do you know how much of that came from small donors? 0.1%. So if you're a regular person in New York, the chance that Andrew Cuomo is going to care about your concerns is exactly that. 0.1%. New York's eight years under the Cuomo administration have been an exercise in living with disappointment, dysfunction, and dishonesty. If we had a real Democrat as a governor, it's not just that we would have a Democratic Senate. We could have fully funded our public schools. We could have enacted campaign finance reform. We could have enacted the Women's Equality Agenda and the New York Dream Act. We could have fixed our subways, strengthened rent control, and, be and become a leader in renewable energy. I am running for governor because I want these things for New York and for New Yorkers. We want our state back. We want our government to work again. We are tired of corruption and dysfunction in Albany. And we are tired of fake corporate Democrats who won't lift a finger unless their donors say it's okay. We are going to do things differently. I am not accepting a single dime of corporate money. This campaign belongs to the people who are part of it. And that's why I'm asking you to get involved. We don't have to settle for things the way they are. We all know New York could be better, but to make it better, we have to do it together. I am here with Tambourine Borelli. She is running to represent Washington's 10th congressional district, and she is running against a corporate Democrat known as Denny Heck. For those of you who have tuned in to the Humanist Report, you know about him because I covered him multiple times. Initially, he started to gain a lot of attention among progressives because he refused to support Medicare for All. We put pressure on him. He still refused to do it. And then we made a lot of threats about challenging him in a Democratic Party primary. And now I have his challenger right here. So Tambourine, thank you so much for being on the program. Oh my God. It's my honor, Mike. I'm really excited to be here with you. I'm excited to have you. And you are one of many progressives running in the state of Washington that are just fiery and fierce. And you are terrifying <laughs> um, your Democratic primary opponent. And it's really making me happy. I, I love it so much. You, Sarah Smith, you guys are crushing it. So first of all, for those of you who don't know about Tambourine Borelli, can you tell us um, a little bit about your campaign and yourself and the policy issues that you are fighting for? Yeah, absolutely. So just a little bit of background uh, from my perspective. I am a part of the demographic that was in an apathetic sleep before 2016. So basically that means I never got involved politically. I, to be honest, never even voted before 2016. And, you know, although some might say, well, you know, people like you are a part of the problem. I would 
uh, in all due respect, say the problem really is the reason why people like me never voted before. Because we never uh, believed that the politicians truly had our best interest at heart. The proverbial fork-tongued politician that would say anything to get elected, and then sure enough, once elected, they fall in line and do the bidding of their masters, which we know uh, is basically a, a corporatist uh, state, an oligarchy that is ruled by profit over people principles. So our campaign is basically rooted in that. It's rooted in the knowledge that we are in a crisis in this country. We have an election system that is broken to say the very least. We have a Congress that is compromised by way of legal bribery through the unending pouring of campaign donations through corporations. We have a government that literally is owned by these corporations. And, you know, we have to just at one point say enough, really, truly is enough. We have to stand up, whether we have uh, experience in politics or not, experience has gotten in the place that we are. We don't need the same old politics as usual. We need people, regular, everyday people, to have the backbone to stand up in the face of Goliath and say, no more are you gonna sell us out over uh, the needs of the American people. Right, I think that what you're saying is really important, especially for your district in particular, because there were people that were showing up to town halls who were getting involved in politics for the first time, who were starting to see an interest in issues that uh, weren't being attended to for Denny Heck. And he was asked about Medicare for all, and he wouldn't support <laughs> H.R. 676, which, as you all know, is uh, formerly John Conyers bill in the House. But it will be taken over by Keith Ellison, who I think has stepped up to sponsor it next year. But. What do you want to say to Denny Heck about Medicare for All and why it's important? And if you have anything else about this issue in particular, why he won't co-sponsor it, um, feel free to speak your mind because I've been I've been I've been ranting about Denny Heck for a while, and now I think that you are the perfect person to tell us why he's not right for that seat. Well, there's many reasons. Medicare for All is just one. So uh, I'll say, as far as that's concerned, I was with many hundreds of people. And this didn't just happen once, but every town hall or gathering, uh, the overwhelming sentiment from the people who literally are his employers. You know, we elect representatives to what? Represent. <laughs> Represent what the people are wanting, not to uh, like he said to us, I have my own mind and you're not going to change it. Mm -hmm. And that he thought we were wrong for supporting Medicare for all. He gave a couple reasons why, which are completely um, unsubstantiated. For instance, he says, well, and this is fear now, the tactic of fear that's always used to move the people away from their, their own interests. He says, well, Medicare Advantage will go away. Well, what difference does it make if Medicare Advantage will go away? Because 
everything will be covered anyway. So, you know, that that's like that double speak where people will get confused. Oh, we don't want Medicare Advantage to go away. You know, the people have to be educated. Um, there's 643,000 people that go bankrupt because of medical expenses. You know, <clears throat> it doesn't have to be that way. When people say, well, how are we gonna pay for it? That, that sentence that is just ridiculous at this point, especially because, Mike, do you ever hear anyone asking those questions? Uh, well, we need $700 billion to fill an already bloated military budget. And then here, here's an extra 80 billion. Yeah, <laughs> you know? never ever hear that question, ever. Ever, right? And here's the thing. As far as military, I have friends who are soldiers and veterans. That money doesn't go for them and their families. They're still struggling. Some of them have to go to the food bank or in line, you know, getting food and, you know, struggling like everybody else. So make no mistake about it. That money and, and uh, bloated budgets for no bid contracts are for the, the CEOs to line the pockets of these corporations and not for the soldiers not for the veterans and you know rep representative heck i use that term lightly and with all due respect um but the truth is you are not and i'm speaking to him you are not representing the people of the tenth the people of the tenth have made their voice very clear we want Medicare for all. We want college for all. You have not signed on to that uh, bill as well. You have not signed on to HB 1114 to expand Social Security when we have seniors right now having to choose, being filled with anxiety, whether they're going to eat well that month have to ration their medication, in some cases, life-saving medications, and whether they're gonna be late again on the roof over their head. It should never come to that. Meanwhile, here uh, in Thurston County, our homeless has doubled from 900 to 1,700 people. I've gone in amongst the encampments and seen human beings living in conditions that you would think are in some third world country. Why aren't you creating bills and legislations to make that a bad memory? We've got the, the capability to do it, and yet we have no willingness on the part of any uh, legislator that I've seen that, that puts these kinds of concerns as tantamount. Yeah, and one thing that's always strange to me about these conservative corporate Democrats in really blue states is that they think that they can get away with being conservative and pro-corporate. But I mean, you're in a generally blue state. I'm in Oregon. You're in Washington. We're neighbors. And there are Democrats who think that they cannot co-sponsor Medicare for all in blue districts and can support fracking and can go along with the Republican Party's agenda and get away with it. And then when we ask them about it, it they chalk it up to, oh, well, this is a difference of opinion. But if you actually look at who's financing the campaign of Denny Heck, well, it's clear it's large multinational corporations. It's health insurers. So clearly he's not taking a stance against progressive issues because he's principled. 
it's clearly because he is sold out. So to me, it's always an outrage when they try to come up with these weird, like you said, double speak um, ways to explain away their corruption. Oh, it's, you know, we don't want to lose Medicare Advantage. I've also heard it with regard to Obamacare. Well, if you want Medicare for all, then you must be against Obamacare. What, what does that even, why does that matter? If Obamacare goes away, we don't need Obamacare if we have Medicare for all. So I'm glad that you pointed that out because that's one of the many things that frustrates me so much. Um, now, also, I, I, I couldn't not ask you about this just because it's topical. The situation in Syria right now, I know that you're going to be a representative, um, you know, if you win. So this is going to be something that will um, affect you in particular. You may have to vote on this. How do you feel about the situation in Syria? Should we just allow Donald Trump to unilaterally wage war? Do you think it should be up to Congress like the Constitution states? What do you want to say about Syria? Because I know that this is something that's really eating away at me. I think that it's really important that we de-escalate right now because we're looking at World War III potentially. I mean, we're on the cusp of two nuclear powers, increasing tensions, potentially getting in a conflict over Syria. Um, if you were a representative, what would you do in this situation? So first, this is multifaceted here. There's a few things I'd like yes. to say about this. Let me just, before I forget, just have a little caveat here and say that our current representative, uh, Congressman Heck, has voted um, consistently pro-war, consistently uh, to arm uh, the Syrian rebels to um, make, uh, I think the it was an authorization act. The exact name is escaping me, but, but the bottom line is that he's given, uh, voted by way to give authorization to the president to go to war without Congress uh, approval. So that could never be, um, you know, that is Congress's responsibility. So um, that's one thing. Now, as far as the principle of why we're there, this is where we get into propaganda. And I feel so strongly about this. Uh, you know, in 2012, there was a bill that was passed, I believe it was uh, 5736, and basically it made propaganda legal. Legal to be used upon the American public where prior to that, it could only be used in the time of war on foreign soil um, for the purposes of uh, the narrative against whoever we were in conflict with. But in 2012, it became legal. Now there's many things that have happened since then that uh, corroborates what the intention, why would you pass a bill? to make propaganda legal to be used on the American people and then not utilize that. Now I say that to say that if the narrative is that we're there for humanitarian purposes because Assad is allegedly attacking his own people, this is where we have to use the utmost of critical thinking. When you ask, the question why, it always peels down the layers of whatever it is that is in query. So why, why, what would Assad have to gain by gassing his own people, hurting his own people, attacking his own people? What would he have to gain? Superpowers coming to overthrow him? That doesn't seem like something uh, 
he would be interested in. And then ask yourself, well, so if we're really concerned about the principle of humanitarian aid uh, and really against this, um, this power here in Syria, Assad, um, committing acts uh, against his own people, then why are we in alignment, best friends, BFFs, with Saudi Arabia, who are the biggest violators of humanitarian, forget uh, just generally humanitarian to women, um, you know, homosexuals. Um, there are, uh, there are um, stories. They stone was, atheists, literally? Just, yes, they stone <laughs> atheists. And I just was reading a report uh, here just earlier this morning that, that uh, even kids, 16 year olds crucified for demonstrating in, in a pro-democracy demonstration. I mean, then please weigh that out. Now, if we were really, if that was our intention, wouldn't we think twice of, of aligning with such reprehensible principles as to what the Saudi Arabia, um, Arabian government do? The, the prince was just here and he got red carpet all the way in every state that he visited. This is hypocrisy. And, and it is a clue to us, those who are wise enough to stop for a second and think, what are we really doing there? You know, is Syria one of the last uh, countries that are in a gold, black, um, pardon me, a, a gold-backed currency? Uh, is it because uh, there is a, an extraordinary amount of oil in Syria? Are we talking about, you know, always follow the money and you'll get the truth of what's really going on. And that's really important because what I'm getting from your answer is that you will be one of the few anti-war Democrats, which sounds weird saying, right? Anti-war Democrat. I mean, the Democratic Party, they used to just be an anti-war party. They were the anti-war party. We could always rely on them to push for de-escalation, to push for non-intervention. And all of a sudden, we see Gene Shaheen during the hearing for uh, Mike Pompeo asking about how tough he'll be on Russia, basing her vote on that. We see Democrats like Howard Dean advocating for Donald Trump to not be a, quote, wimp when it comes to Putin and Syria. So the fact that we now have to distinguish between anti-war and pro-war Democrats is mind-boggling to me. And this really gets to a broader issue of the Democratic Party's incompetence. So I know that you're running as a Democrat, but at the same time, do you have any criticisms, generally speaking, for the party? I know that you believe that it's it's money you have to follow the money and that they're corrupt but generally speaking can you talk about how they've moved away from the people because i think this is really important yeah so firstly i'll clarify i am not running as a democrat oh okay okay i am running as an independent oh that's actually really exciting then <laughs> i didn't know about that yeah and you know and i'll just tell you just just quickly that in 2016 you know when i threw myself into this political process i actually did run for state Senate. And part of the reason why I decided not to run as a Democrat is because I experienced, like many are experiencing now who are running as progressive Democrats, that I was having to fight just within the party before I ever even put energy to fight the opponent. The establishment Democrats, five minutes before the filing deadline, pulled out of retirement um, a 20-year veteran of the House the state house and senate to run against me because they didn't want a Bernie crat 
a progressive in that seat, but would rather the Tea Party Republican <laughs> to stay in office. And that's what inevitably happened. So, and this is in Washington, a, a blue, <laughs> blue state. Exactly. Oh. So I was like, you know, first time, shame on you. Second time, shame on me. I could do bad by myself, as the saying goes. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think it's important that people understand uh, independents are on the rise, uh, especially after 2016. There's quite a bit of uh, the demographic, even in the 10th, that don't want anything to do with either party. Yeah. Um, you know, so for instance, 50% of the registered voters didn't even vote. And I'd have to say, to be fair, quite a few of them were probably like me, just apathetic. Like, you know what? You guys never vote for what we want anyway. So why am I even going to get involved? So, um, you know, to speak to your question, yes. Uh, as far as the Democratic Party getting away from the principles that are rooted within the beginning of the party. They were the party of the people. Uh, but now we see them uniting uh, Democrats and Republicans, uniting, there is no resistance when it comes to passing legislation that benefits payday lenders, that, that benefits the war machine, that benefits the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical industry. There is unification there, uh, if there ever was unification. So, you know, that that needs to be shouted from the mountaintops that the everyday people need to come together and regardless of what letter is behind the name, because that is part of the plan. As long as we are divided within the left, they love to see it splintered because we are ineffectual when we are arguing about the things we disagree upon, even with those who are across so-called uh, the aisle, uh, for instance. There are Republicans, regular everyday people, Republicans that want Medicare for all. Right. They, they want their kids to go to college without being burdened by debt, and they surely want their senior uh, parents to be able to live a dignified life. So really, what do we disagree upon? It is those at the top uh, that are towing the line, the corporatist line, that really make this separation. So the people really need to put policy above party in this 2018 election. Vote for the one who aligns with what you are wanting to affect your daily life. Forget about what party they're with. And I think that that is incredibly important. Um, I actually, I just did a segment on Tim Canova because he was initially challenging Debbie Wasserman Schultz as a Democrat, then decided to go independent once he realized that, you know, you can't run in a party that has the tools at their disposal to crush you so he decided to just you know uh, go independent and then do it on his own so um i wanted to get your take on the obvious criticism with anyone who is against independence because well you know you're going to split the votes um and voter shaming in general seems to be a really common theme among democratic party loyalists what do you have to say to those people I think, uh, in all honesty, it's bullshit. <laughs> I'm just going to be <laughs> really uh, real with you. That is part of a strategy yep. um, that has been designed to keep us um, towing the line and, and creating 
a political atmosphere that makes it impossible for any insurgent to come up. It makes it impossible for any candidate that is progressive uh, or and of and by the people to get anywhere within a race because people are believing the propaganda and that's what it is. It is propaganda and it's based in manipulation and control. If everybody just rallied behind and, and voted, went to the ballot box and voted for the principle, for the policy, we would be surprised who we end up with. So I really feel strongly about that. Go with what is in your gut, what's in your mind and what's in your heart. If those three things align, whoever they are, put every bit of your energy, your time and your money to make sure that person gets elected. Otherwise you're gonna get everything that you've ever always gotten and that's nothing. We've, we've gotten nothing from, from the establishment politics as usual paradigm. And you're making such a good point about this being a strategy, because let me ask you this, Tambourine. Do you ever hear, hear people who are the loudest about you having to vote Democrat every single time? Do you ever hear them pushing for ranked choice voting? Because never. I don't. Never, 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 never. Isn't because, that interesting? Yeah, it's totally not in their best interest to do that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, critical thinking. That's critical thinking, Mike. Yeah, yeah. So, um... I like what you're doing in going Democrat uh, or independent. Excuse me. This actually really excites me because I've been saying a long time now. Um, I don't know how long I've been saying this, that if Democrats are not going to play ball with progressives, if they're going to rig it against you, if they're going to resurrect old dinosaurs to run against progressives, like, you know, what happened in your case, then you have to play hard. You have to go independent. This is what I was hoping Bernie Sanders would do in 2016 when Donald Trump, for example, when there were some inklings that the RNC was going to do some type of shenanigans to maybe try to kill off his campaign when it was gaining a lot of momentum, what did he do? He threatened to go independent. And this scares them because they know that if more progressives threaten to go independent, then that's not going to be good for the party. And people will start migrating towards voting independent. They won't just automatically be programmed to vote Democrat. So this is this is terrifying to them. And I like it. So um, I'm glad that you're doing that and taking a stand because it's incredibly important. If they cut off your access to NGP van, which happens to so many progressives, if they try to shut you out of the primary, then you have to take a stand and go independent. If they're going to play hard, we got to play hard too. So I commend you for doing that. I think that that is really exciting. Um, and you, you also... So yeah, you, you have no, um, you don't have to ask about Tambourine Borelli now. You don't have to ask, well, is she one of those anti-war or pro-war Democrats? Is she one of those pro-Medicare for all or anti-Medicare for all Democrats? Because you're an independent. I mean, there's no labels attached to that. There's no pre-existing connotations that are there. No negative implications about you, you know? Um, so I think that that is fantastic. So before we leave, I just want... Um, I want you to tell people what we can do to help you out. Can we donate? Can we canvas? Can we make phone calls for you? How can we get you to help us defeat Denny Heck and get him the heck out of Congress? I had to do it. I'm sorry. I know. No, it's honestly, funny. it's the best hashtag, isn't it? <laughs> hashtag get <laughs> I, I really the heck out of Congress. That was what <laughs> he ran on. His campaign slogan was give Congress heck. <laughs> like, honestly, and, and the only heck he's been giving has been to us, the people. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I just want to say that your viewership 
are the bomb. Can I tell you that one little excerpt you did, it was just a couple minutes when you found out that I was running, right? Mm -hmm. That one little thing, I got more donations in four hours than any other time or any other interview I've ever done. I was really? like, man, the Humanist Report viewers are just like on it. I just They are amazing. I, I agree. They are amazing. I don't even know how else to describe them. No, well, you know, the tail follows the head. So it's got something to do with you for sure. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. So I'll say this, that admittedly, the, our campaign has not focused, really focused on fundraising until now. We've really uh, just taken the time to build the root system mm -hmm. within CD10. And, you know, we've got an amazing team now, amazing uh, management, field organizer, organizer, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> say that five times, <laughs> field organizer. <laughs> Mike, you think you've had a lot of coffee today. Uh, this is why I don't do live shows very often. I do pre-recorded so I could just, <laughs> you know, take two. <laughs> take, take five. Yeah. So the thing is this, is that now we're doing the FEC reports and those that are watching our campaign that could lend another um, boost of support are seeing just how much we're raising. Now, I... I really don't like anything having to do with assessing the viability of a campaign based on how much money that they've raised because it's too reminiscent of the paradigm that the establishment uses. It's the dialing for dollars. You know, when, when people make it to Congress, they spend most of their time in a cubicle calling for donations. I don't, I really, I think that's why we haven't really focused on it. But the truth is we need some money to be able to get uh, the materials that we need to get the word out to the people. So now we're really focusing on just, you know, getting enough of what we need. So if you can, please go to our site. I know you guys are the best at that. You, you probably donate to everyone and you might be uh, running low, but whatever that you've got, uh, we could really use it. And we could use as much uh, social media, cyber canvassing, help as possible, retweeting the campaign, sharing our website to anyone that cares about changing a system, because it's not about just getting one representative in. What we're endeavoring to do is make history and doing a paradigm shift in the way that politics is done. If we could get elected just by the, the brute force of, of the people and their uh, resilience and their, um, not resistance, but insistence that we change the system. We could change everything. So I ask you, please go on the site, tambourine, T-A-M-B-O-R-I-N-E, 2018.com. Um, if you're here in Washington, we really could use your, um, <laughs> your help in, in the way that we're approaching, not by knocking on every door necessarily, but we figured if we could find the busiest intersection in every town of CD10 and be a consistent presence there with our message to A, tell people who we are and what we stand for and 
also to educate them of how their current representative has been voting for them. Those messages right there, those three messages consistently on signs that people are holding in every town, we could reach tens of thousands of people. So if you're into it, come join our army, our canvassing uh, billboard army. And I feel like we really could be an upset in this primary. August 7th uh, is the primary. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, Tambourine Borelli, thank you so much for coming on the program. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much. I am here with Tim Canova running in Florida's 23rd Congressional District against the infamous Debbie Wasserman Schultz, one of the most corrupt people in Congress currently. I think that that is not a controversial um, thing to say right now. Tim, welcome to the program. Mike, it's great to be with you. Thanks I'm really excited to have you. So we had some really big news about your campaign, and I was so excited about this. So you've decided to run as an independent. Explain us your reasoning here. Sure. Um it was a long time coming. Uh, I, uh, I registered Democrat when I first was able to vote at the age of 18. And I worked on Capitol Hill for a couple of years for a Democrat, the late U.S. Senator Paul Songus. Uh, I've worked on a number of campaigns and helped Democrats over the years. Uh, and it was, you know, the party that I identified with, um, you know, I guess you could say the great New Deal traditions of the party, the party of of uh, Roosevelt and Kennedy. Uh, and I became disappointed in the party some years ago. Um, the, the corporate drift of the party was quite disturbing. I'm a law professor and I've been writing um, out uh, against uh, the deregulation of financial markets, uh, among other things. And, um, and the Democrats seem to lead the way uh, with this neoliberal type of uh, agenda. And in, actually it was in 2012, I registered, um, uh, independent, uh, non-party affiliation. Uh, I voted for Barack Obama's re-election, but I thought, um, uh, you know, my dissatisfaction with the party had reached a point where um, I did register independent. And I was independent for a couple of years and then changed back to Democrat and, um, uh, as you know, challenged the chair of the Democratic National Committee. So I, I was doing my part, I thought, to try to reform the party from within. And uh, we... Uh, announced our intention to run again after the last um, primary against Wasserman Schultz and uh, was planning on running as a Democrat. The problem was nothing had really changed in the party, not here in Broward County and or the state level or, or probably national either. Uh, this is a party that uh, really favors the incumbents in uh, primaries and I'm in a closed primary state uh, and they favor the incumbents in so many ways. They shield them from debates they uh, pump them up with corporate donations. And then, uh, as if that's not bad enough, they do their damnedest to keep uh, challengers like me uh, off of podiums, away from microphones, unable to even speak at public forums. Um, so that's a, that's a brutal combination for a closed primary. And we were very um, excited about the race we ran last time. Our internal field numbers showed us just rocking it right to the end. And we came out of nowhere. Nobody had even heard of me. Uh, a few months before the, the primary. Um, however, uh, things took an even worse turn, uh, which is when we tried to uh, verify the, the, the vote. We tried to inspect the ballots uh, from my 2016 primary. And we put in a public records request uh, in November of 2016. The supervisor of elections of Broward County stonewalled us for many months 
and I was finally forced to, if I really wanted to see these ballots and verify the vote, I was forced to file a lawsuit last summer. While the lawsuit was pending, the supervisor of elections of Broward County destroyed all of our paper ballots. And um, there's been no adequate explanation whatsoever. You know, oops, we made a mistake. Um, it just doesn't carry, um, really, it just doesn't make much sense. They even signed a destruction order claiming the ballots were not the subject of any pending litigation when they were. So I, uh, I contacted the Secretary of State of Florida. Uh, I sent a letter, uh, you know, calling for an investigation. And I called on Democratic leaders in Broward County and Miami-Dade and statewide uh, to join me in this call for uh, an investigation. And the silence was deafening. Uh, nobody uh, would speak up and even ask for, you know, some investigation of what happened in a Democratic primary and a highly contested one. And that was pretty much the last straw. You know, at the same time that the Democratic Party was really pushing us out, uh, is the way I described it. They left, they left us. We didn't leave the Democratic Party. Uh, at the same time, that was really reaching a peak. Um, the, um, you know, this young generation uh, was standing up uh, probably more visibly or vocally than, than uh, we'd seen in the past. Uh, you know, these are high school kids coming of age in the aftermath of the Parkland shootings. And it, you know, it really kind of highlights what's happening here, this generational shift. Uh, millennials and younger, uh, something like 70% of them are now non-party affiliation. They're independents. They've rejected both the Democratic and Republican parties. And I think they've seen these parties for the kind of corrupt institutions they've become. The Democratic Party has really become a conduit for funneling corporate lobbyist donations, corporate money uh, to a political consulting class and, and media buys. And uh, if they're going to remain uh, as this conduit for corporate money, their primary mission has been to stifle dissent within the party and to prevent progressives like me from, uh, from challenging entrenched incumbents. Their secondary objective is to defeat Republicans in general elections, but it's, it's only secondary. Their main primary objective is to remain a corporate party. And we're not a corporate campaign. We were not last time. We'll never be. I didn't take a penny from any corporate political action committees or super PACs. Uh, I think uh, I remember reading in the Huffington Post that our campaign last time around broke all records for the highest percentage of small donations online for any federal campaign in history. And I'm proud of that. Um, I've never done the call time. I've never begged for dollars from, uh, you know, business people. And uh, it's all small donations online. People are going to timcanova.com. Uh, and I will say that since we made this announcement, since I made the announcement that we're going to run as an independent, uh, we've seen a, a pretty good upsurge of small donations online. And that's what we need if we're going to, uh, if we're going to win this race. And I think if we do, it's, it's really kind of a game changer. Uh, you know, the political revolution was running through South Florida two years ago when I was challenging the head of the DNC. I think uh, now uh, it's once again running through South Florida, uh, running as an independent. Yeah, progressives aren't going anywhere. And I just want to uh, follow up on something that you said about auditing the vote, especially because there was evidence of fraud being committed. Vote auditing is not something that is controversial. Anyone can do it. I can audit the election results in my county. Anyone can do this. So the fact that they went to such great lengths to block you from just doing a simple tally of the votes, 
I think that's really telling of the corruption that's going on there. And certainly the aggregate, you know, the National Democratic Party, they're very corrupt, but state parties in particular, some of them are very corrupt. You know, at the top of my head, I'm thinking of Nevada, California, and definitely Florida. So um, when you talk about that, Tim, going independent because of all of this, what you say resonates with me specifically because I actually lived in a closed primary state as well. And I did register as an independent because the party, like you said, it no longer represents us, you know, and really we didn't leave the party. They left us. They're not representing millennials. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's incredible, Mike. They've done everything, but tell me to leave the party. You know, <laughs> I, I go to uh, democratic club meetings and Wasserman Schultz's aide gets 10 minutes to address the crowd. I can't even get up for a two minute stump speech. They barely even mention my name. They keep me away from the microphone. And their excuse afterwards is that Wasserman Schultz sent a cake to the lunch and I didn't. I bought a table for the campaign at the lunch, but I didn't I didn't give them a cake. Uh, so <laughs> it's, you know, they, they make up the rules as they go along anything to keep that man, me, away from the microphone to just introduce myself. So, you know, they tell us to leave the party basically. Uh, and we do. And then they claim we're dividing the party. <laughs> right. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because since you have basically decided to run as an independent, um, when I watch stories or, or read stories about this or watch videos about it on YouTube, there's always the common criticism, you know, from, um, I want to say, the center left. Um, or actually the center, really, from neoliberal Democratic Party loyalists who will say, well, now he's just ensuring that a Republican is going to win that seat in that district. How do you respond to those people? Because I'm someone who is definitely against vote shaming, and it seems like nothing we say can satisfy them. So what do you say to critics who think that this is a bad decision? Well, well I'll say this. First of all, if you believe the count from the last election, and there's lots of reasons now to wonder since, you know, major federal violations were made to cover up or to, to not have a real ballot inspection. But and it's it, Debbie Wasserman Schultz too, just alone <laughs> tells you enough. And her machine, absolutely. But if you believe the official count, we got almost 44% of the vote in a closed primary when I was a candidate for less than eight months, heading against somebody who everyone assumed was going to be in the Hillary Clinton administration right up until election day. Uh, so we already have a good chunk of Democratic support in this district, and the independents are not far behind Democrats in this district in registration, non-party affiliation. I intend to win this race. Uh, the people who are complaining and whining that, oh, this is going to set it up for a Republican victory, it shows they've got no confidence that Debbie Wasserman Schultz can win a three-way race. And, you know, then I hear people pointing to 2000, the year 2000, the election with Ralph Nader. Well, a lot has changed since 2000. 18 years has gone by. We are arguably in year 10 of an economic depression for most Americans. I know, you know, GNP growth is 2% or something, and the stock market's riding high. Uh, but the unemployment rates of fiction. Most people are suffering, and they don't have good jobs. They're afraid to leave the crappy job they have, basically, uh, if they're lucky to have one. Um, this is year 10 of a lot of economic pain. And you take a look at this millennial generation. Again, 70% of them, or, uh, and people younger than the millennials, 70% are non-party affiliation to the point where the largest political block, voting block in this country is now non-party affiliation. About 41% of Americans are not registered Democrat or Republican. Both Democrats and Republicans lag behind independents. 
That was not the case in the year 2000 with Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader was, you know, way ahead of his time, you can say. Uh, at this point, the clock has caught up. Uh, it's not as tough a road for independents to run against um, both established parties in a general election. I think a lot of folks are going to see a corporate-funded Democrat, a corporate-funded Republican, and a grassroots independent, and they're going to have a real choice this time. That's uh, that's really exciting to hear. And really, if anyone can win an independent congressional race, I really feel like it's you because you're one of the first Bernie Kratz, if you want to, uh, if you will, who came out of the 2016 election. You were one of the first few people that really gave a lot of us hope that, oh, OK, it's not just Bernie now. There's other people who are coming out who are running on this platform of Medicare for all tuition free public colleges and universities ending the wars. So I think that that's really important. Now, on the subject of Bernie Sanders, I wanted to ask you, because it, the last time you were running, um, I kind of irritated Bernie Sanders personally because I made a video calling him out when he stopped campaigning for you. So in 2016, just to give everybody, um, you know, some context, uh, Bernie Sanders endorsed Tim Canova, and then he suddenly kind of gave you the cold shoulder. So I called Bernie out, told him to help Tim Canova. This is he's running against Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, Chuck Todd actually aired my criticism and gave it to Bernie, and Bernie kind of brushed it off. I want to ask you this time, Tim. Yeah. What's your relationship like with Bernie? Has he endorsed you? Um, have you spoken with any of the Bernie people at all? Because now that you're independent, he's also independent. So I think that he could probably empathize, you know, with you and why you're doing this. Um, right. Any updates on that well, with Bernie? Let me give you a little background. Um, I uh, was a law professor, uh, have been a law professor for the past two decades, and writing an awful lot about the Federal Reserve and the need to reform the Fed quite dramatically. And... Uh, I will say my views were kind of outlier progressive views until the 2008 financial collapse. And suddenly I was among those who had really uh, been proven uh, to have been right for a long time. And um, in 2011, um, it was right around when I was part of the Occupy uh, Wall Street movement. Uh, I was actually uh, out in Los Angeles teaching um, out, out in Southern California and uh, Part of the Occupy Los Angeles encampment, uh, teaching a workshop on the Federal Reserve. Right around that time, I got a call from Senator Sanders' office uh, asking me to be on an advisory committee on reforming the Fed. So I got to know the senator a little bit through that kind of work, and I had already had a very great opinion of him. And when he decided to run for president, I immediately endorsed him uh, and uh, contributed to his campaign, like millions of other small donations, at a time when I didn't have the foggiest inclination to run for uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz's seat. Uh, about six months later, um, a confluence of events led me to jump in, and a lot of it was to support Bernie Sanders' campaign. The, the pivotal moment was when Wasserman Schultz and her DNC tried to um, deny the Sanders campaign access to the Van Voter database. And at that point, I, I made up my mind that I was jumping in. And Really, I, I felt so inspired by the senator, by Senator Sanders, to be calling for this nonviolent, progressive political revolution and conjuring up this movement. A lot of the Occupy Wall Street and you know people who had been active on all kinds of progressive campaigns came to life and gravitated around Bernie, and, and so did I. And I never reached out and asked for his endorsement. I just didn't think it was within the realm of possibility. Uh, after all, I was running against the head of the DNC. He had his race. I had mine. He had enough political enemies. I figured we never even reached out to, to, didn't think it was within the realm of possibility. And then in May of 2016, out of the blue, 
Bernie surprised us and, and endorsed me. And uh, I didn't see it coming whatsoever. His endorsement meant a lot. Um, we had already raised a million dollars, but uh, we probably raised another million dollars just from his endorsement and a couple of emails that he put out on my behalf, on behalf of our campaign. Uh, so I'm forever grateful for everything he did to help highlight our campaign and, and boost it. Um, when he did not um, campaign alongside me in South Florida, you know, I, I won't pretend, it, you know, of course it's disappointing, uh, but um, I certainly understood the kind of pressures that uh, Bernie must have been under, and I believe still is. Uh, I hear all the time people um, criticizing him that he has not done more, and you're not going to hear me criticize him for that. Uh, you know, he has a, a full-time job representing the people of Vermont, and at this point, the American people. And he functions in the United States Senate, where there are a lot of carrots and sticks, and the stakes are very high. And he's fighting for us all the time. I don't expect an endorsement. I have not reached out for an endorsement. If one comes my way, I'll be as surprised as I was last time. Uh, you know, I don't think you win campaigns on the ground by endorsements. And I'll say that the two campaigns that were really the model for me when I got in last time, and they remain the model, one was Paul Wellstone's campaign in the 1990s. Wellstone was just a political science professor at Carleton College, and he took on a very entrenched Republican, Rudy Boschwitz, and he ran a great grassroots campaign, and he won. And the other was more recent. It was Eric Cantor, the Republican whip in the, um, in the House of Representatives, lost a, uh, an open primary, I believe it was, to David Bratt, a college mm -hmm. professor in Virginia. And Cantor outspent Bratt $5 million to 300000 and, you know, it just shows uh, both those campaigns that if you've got a message and you're speaking the truth and you got the people on your side, the political consulting class can't stop you. Um, endorsements for your opponent won't prop them up. Uh, if as long as we can verify the vote and make sure that every ballot is counted, I think grassroots progressives, whether they're running as Democrats or independents, are going to be surging this fall. That's exciting. And I actually wanted to ask you about, you know, bigger picture issues in particular, you know, because we're at a time when we have Donald Trump as the president. We are looking at the possibility of conflict between the United States and Russia over Syria. So I just wanted to ask you and get your take on this. Where do you see the country in 10 years? Do you feel as though progressives will gain a lot more ground? Do you think that there's hope for the Democratic Party? Do you think by then maybe the party uh, just collapses entirely and we see a new party rise up? Just, I know this is a really broad question, but do you think that progressives ultimately will be successful or is you know the forces in Washington, D.C. just too powerful? Um, to be very honest with you, um, I think anything is possible anything. Uh, it could be a progressive tide that's coming sooner than we realize, or we could be heading into a dark age. Uh, I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but you take a look at what's at stake right now in this world. The distribution of wealth and income and power has probably never been more top-heavy than it is in this country at this moment. Um, it's an unstable financial and economic system. There's a lot of disaffection here. There's the problem uh, existential threat here in South Florida, it certainly is, of rising sea levels and climate change, right. uh, you know, the environment at a tipping point. You've got a global uh, 
uh, context of increasing hostilities, arms sales all over the world, what seems like a nonstop bloodshed in so many countries, proxy wars between um, the Saudis and the Iranians, um, uh, proxy wars perhaps between the United States and Russia. Uh, I'm very disturbed by what's happening in Syria. I, I, I caution against a rush to judgment and to, uh, I think the president should not be acting militarily based on unsubstantiated allegations. Uh, there needs to be a real investigation uh, as to the source of uh, the latest chemical attack, chemical weapons attack in Syria. Uh, a year ago almost, last April, there was another uh, attack like that in Syria and Trump fired something like 50 plus cruise missiles into Syria without any congressional authorization. I mean, just a lawless act. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz, among others, applauded him for it. So for months she had been calling him a madman and then suddenly he fires cruise missiles into a country based on, again, allegations. Um, and I'm not here to say the allegations are true or false, but we've gone to war too many times on unsubstantiated allegations. Many of them have turned out to have been lies. Uh, you can go back to the Vietnam War, I'm sure you can go back even earlier, but the Vietnam War, the Gulf of Tonkin incident led to congressional authorization and you know, 57,000 Americans dead, many more injured and millions of Vietnamese killed. And then of course, much more recently, the lies that led us into the war in Iraq. Uh, you know, Barack Obama, when he was a candidate in 2008, said he didn't just wanna end the war in Iraq, he wanted to end the mindset that got us into Iraq. And I think on that count, we have failed terribly as a nation. Yeah. Uh, the mindset that got us into Iraq was that it's okay to engage in wars of regime change. They don't have to comply with international law or even perhaps our own constitutional framework. And those wars of regime change are justified uh, by politicized intelligence that are often lies that are just repeated by a corporate media. And this is a pattern that's been going on way too long. Right. So I'm sorry for digressing, but you ask, where will this country be in 10 years? I wonder where is it going to be a month from now, a week from now. Right. These are very serious times. There's an oligarchy that's been in charge. They want to suppress uh, dissent. They want to crush can ca campaigns like mine. Uh, and the people aren't going away and the people are waking up. So I, I do think this country is at a, an incredible crossroads right now. And it's a time for people to step up, uh, to sacrifice, uh, to redouble their commitment and to have courage. Absolutely. I want to um, ask you one last question um, before we end the interview, because this is something that I always um, struggle with personally. If I were to run for Congress, which I don't want to, but let's say hypothetically speaking, you win, you um, kick Debbie Wasserman Schultz out of office, and you get to Congress with so many issues that need to be addressed, with so much at stake. What do you do first? What do you think would be one of your uh, first couple of legislative priorities? I think the top priority for this country has got to be election integrity. Uh, there's just too much that went on in 2016 that has undermined the public's faith and confidence in the election system. Uh, in about a dozen states, uh, a lot of eyebrows have been raised as to what happened to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Exit polls showing him winning and losing caucuses and primaries that uh, people just don't have faith in the, the results. And uh, when you call this out, 
you know, uh, the, the, the establishment tries to, to kick you down for just speaking some basic truths. Mm -hmm. uh, last October, the New York City Board of Elections admitted in a civil consent decree that they had uh, purged over 200,000 citizens from their voting rolls in the days before uh, that presidential primary. And there's been no criminal investigation or prosecutions. So there's been this kind of rigging, uh, ballot destruction, uh, purging of voter rolls that has happened with impunity. And uh, this has got to stop. This country will never be a democracy again if we don't have fair elections with integrity. All over Western Europe, countries have banned the electronic voting machines because they understand how easy it is for them to be hacked, whether it's by foreign powers or domestic. Uh, we need to return to not just what the Europeans do, but what uh, was done in this country for 200 years, basically. Paper ballots counted by hand in public and reported immediately at the local precinct level. They would be transparent uh, elections and the votes would be verifiable. What would it require to do that? It would require the federal government probably to spend a few billion dollars on election day and election night to employ 100,000 Americans or whatever number it takes to actually do their civic duty and count these ballots so that we have trust in our elections. And the federal government is able to have trillion dollar tax cuts and trillion dollar quantitative easing programs for Wall Street banks and hundreds of billions of dollars in corporate subsidies. Certainly it can afford to pay for an election system that restores the public's faith and confidence. I would be trying to work hard as a top priority, taking corporate money out of politics. I know I'm not the only one running on that. Uh, we need more folks who not just will run on that. I mean, even my my opponent, Wasserman Schultz, talks about overturning Citizens United while she <laughs> takes millions of dollars in, in corporate campaign contributions. And predatory uh, payday lenders specifically. That's hilarious Wall, to me. Wall Street banks, payday yeah. lenders, private prison companies, fossil fuels, the list goes on and on with her. It's unbelievable. And, you know, again, I, I urge uh, your viewers to go online to timcanova.com and throw a few dollars our way. It's beginning to add up. Uh, do not underestimate uh, people power. When the grassroots uh, come together, uh, we can we can overcome uh, this corporate uh, oligarchy and, and these corporate funded political machines. Uh, so, you know, it's a it's a great progressive agenda. And I, I would uh, urge folks to go to timcanova.com and, and check out our issues page. Um, there are so many campaigns where you go to their websites and their issue page is, you know, six bullet points. And that's about it. Uh, and maybe oh, platitudes. <laughs> and maybe it's because I'm a law professor. I've been writing about a lot of these problems for years and publishing in book chapters and law journals and you name it. So there's a paper record out there. Uh, but we've got very detailed issue statements with commitments and ideas. We did everything but put footnotes in there. Uh, so I would urge folks to go to our website, help us in any way they can, and, and to please share on social media and spread the word. A lot of folks don't know, first, that the Broward Supervisor of Elections destroyed the ballots in our race. We've got a video, a four-minute video up on our website that really explains it and actually has excerpts of the supervisor's own deposition. Uh, and a lot of folks don't know we're running as an independent this time. Uh, so uh, I urge folks, please go online to our website. Help us in any way you can. Um, the time is now uh, to, to stand firm and to, to not back down, to not back down. It's, uh, it's important. This is a fight we can't walk away from. 
is there any need for canvassing currently in your district or uh, phone banking for people who don't live in uh, your district? Yes, there is. And, and canvassing and phone banking were such a big part of our last campaign. Uh, so many people from all over the country were phone banking for us. We're, we're about to have our own dialer um, up on our website within a few days so folks can be phone banking for us. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, last campaign, I'll tell you, we got a couple of dozen uh, burners, people who had experience as field organizers and deputy field organizers in, in Bernie's campaign came to our district. We actually had to rent two houses uh, for these folks uh, to live here. Uh, while uh, knocking on doors in the, the, the summer heat and humidity. Um, and we also had a couple of hundred volunteers right from our district. It was quite a grassroots campaign. We had four field offices. I don't think there was probably any congressional campaign in the country where there was a bigger commitment to uh, the ground game, to the field operations. And at the height of that campaign, we were knocking on uh, uh, about ten to 12,000 doors a week and engaging voters in their front doors, you know, their, 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 their uh, living rooms, uh, talking with them about the issues. And we were also calling about 3,000 folks every week as well. Uh, and our field numbers really showed us rocking it, which is why um, among the reasons we were uh, concerned about the official count and we thought we, we better at least start asking some questions. And, and I'm very glad we did. A lot of folks told me that I shouldn't have pursued the public records request, that I shouldn't have brought a lawsuit against the Broward Supervisor of Elections. And you know when, when you ask to see something and the authorities say uh, you know they, they they make it difficult, uh, it should only make us more motivated to dig harder and find out what it is they're hiding. And it was only after we filed the lawsuit that these election officials actually violated federal law and destroyed the ballots. Uh, so we've we we cannot relent. We have to be pushing on all fronts at this point. Well, hey, thank you so much for what you're doing, and I think that you're movement and your campaign it really is inspirational to people who do feel demoralized because you see just how much people power is going into your campaign and really you were one of the original bernie crats and now when you look at the 2018 election there are dozens running across the country probably more than a hundred so it's just it's really great to see people getting behind progressives and to see all this momentum it's really inspiring so tim Mike, thank uh, you let me, let me just say that i hear a lot of times people say that I've inspired them to run. That's and, great. Uh, but I got to tell you, you know, it's great if you can help and people are demoralized and you're able to inspire them. But as a candidate up against a big, tough machine, it has been so easy to get demoralized in the past two years. I've been inspired by the grassroots. I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be able to do it if the grassroots wasn't there every day helping our campaign in big ways and small ways. So I just want to say how grateful I am for the inspiration that I get and the encouragement I get from all of you. That's great. Teamwork across the country. I like it. So Tim, Teamwork. thanks so much. Yeah, th thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. And tell us where to reach you on Twitter real quick before we leave. I think that is Tim underscore Canova uh, on Facebook. We're Tim Canova FL. Uh, and uh, our website is timcanova.com. All right. Hope you guys enjoy that. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. Hopefully, you enjoyed this show. Thanks so much to my guests this week, Tambourine Borelli and Tim Canova. Uh, fantastic people to have on the program, challenging the Democratic Party establishment in 
new ways, running as an independent. I, I mean, nothing scares the Democratic Party more than having insurgent independents challenge, challenge them. So thank you all so much. If you've made it this far in the program, I really appreciate your viewership. And um, to anyone who supports us through either Patreon or PayPal, again, I want to send a special shout out to you guys because you helped the show not only to survive, but thrive as well. And we certainly could use every bit of support we can get at a time when YouTube I mean, their fuckery, I think, is at an all-time high, so I don't want to complain about that because that's going to take me on a different tangent. But as usual, thank you all so much. Um, hopefully, you enjoy the show. I'll see you all next week. Take care.